0: Where are you going? Get your hands off of me. I said, where are you going?
1: You got no use for a man you can't depend on. One bad night, and I'm done for. An old man takes a pot shot at me, and I'm finished. I tried, and I tried hard. Where'd he get me? Look at me. I got him so
0: bad. What can a man do with hands like that? Through. I quit, John. Quit. All right, quit. Somebody's trying to stop you. If you want to quit, quit. Go on back to the bottle. Get drunk. One thing, though. Somebody throws a dollar in a spittoon. Don't expect me to do something about it. Just get on on your knees and go after it. I'm sorry. Sorry, don't get it done, dude. That's the second time you hit me. Don't ever do it again. Maybe you're right. They aren't much good anymore.
2: Purple line in the canyon, that's where I long to be
1: with my three good companions. Just my rifle pony and me gonna hang.
2: My sombrero on the limb of a tree. Coming home,
0: sweetheart, darling, just my rifle, pony, and me. Whippoorwill in the willow. Welcome to another episode
2: of the Film 89 podcast. As usual, I'm Sky and I'm one of the editors over at film89.co.uk. And for all you number fans, this is episode number 34. And tonight I'm joined for the third time by our good friend and no longer a guest host, as he's now officially one of the Film 89 writing team. It's Mr. John Arminio. John, welcome back.
0: Oh, thank you. It's an honour to be included in the team and it's another—it's an honour to be uh, recorded on you uh, with, uh, on a podcast
2: again. Well, it's great to have you back, John. You, you, your previous two episodes, uh, Apocalypse Now and Star Trek The Motion Picture, were just really popular. And uh, as always, great to chat with you. But the main topic of tonight's episode has been one that you've been dying to talk about after you pitched it a while back. It's one of director Howard Hawks's most beloved films, which is celebrating his 60th anniversary this year. It is, of course, Rio Bravo. Now, both Howard Hawks and Rio Bravo are a director and film held in the highest regard by one of our favourite directors, John Carpenter. And tonight's guest host knows, I don't know, as much about John Carpenter and his films as anyone else we know. He's a brilliant author and writer on the subject of horror and film scores in particular, and his book, Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers, is absolutely essential reading for horror film lovers. He's an ex-film professor, a journalist, a maker of TV shows, and a host of numerous podcasts, including Cuts from the Crypt, and the brilliant, and I really do mean brilliant, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, certainly one of our favourite podcasts, which he records with his friend and co-host Dion Beyer. It is, of course, Mr. J. Blake Fischerer.
1: Blake, welcome to
2: Film 89.
1: Well, thank you, thank you for having me. I don't. I feel uh, a little self-conscious with such a, an illustrious introduction.
2: <laughs> I, I do like to do long introductions for people's uh, first time on here. You know, John's as he's, he's been on. I think this is his third time now, and his guests just get progressively shorter. It's the same with Bill Scurry and Martin Kessler. We're all now on on three times. Yeah, you know, I think by the time you get to the fourth time, it's just be. Uh, and tonight joining us will be Blake. <laughs> Just for our listeners who are not familiar with you, Blake, just tell us who you are and and a little bit about your podcast and your your book and just sort of
1: bring our listeners who might not uh, be aware of you up to speed. Uh, Well, I mean, I feel like you kind of covered it. The book is uh, a collection of interviews with composers who have made significant contributions to the horror genre, including John Carpenter. Uh, Members of the band Goblin and some of the composers that have worked on some of the great horror franchises of all time. It was an honor and a privilege to be able to talk to all those guys and, and do the book. I'm now working on the second version of the book, the sequel, volume two. Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers is a podcast not too much unlike this one. Dia and Baia and I uh, dive into uh, film in a very uh, loving and nostalgic way. And we try to give a little, some background to the movies, put put them in context of when they were made and, and other things, and uh, just have a good time doing it.
2: And I think, uh, Blake, you guys are coming up the anniversary of the podcast is that right we have
1: our, our as of when we're recording this right now it's just uh, right around the corner at the end of september our fifth anniversary and you haven't given away
2: any clues yet as to what the film is so i'm not gonna <laughs> i'm not gonna ask you to give it away here although i think by the time this is your episode will have dropped so uh but yeah definitely looking forward to that and i can only say like that i think if film 89 is still going after five years like i only hope that we are still going as strongly as you guys are i think we mentioned it a few episodes back one of our listener questions was uh what is our what are our favorite podcasts aside from our own and you know without hesitating neil and i were just like yeah saturday night movie sleepovers is just one of our go-to podcasts you and dion have got a fantastic you know rapport and relationship you you just got a love of the same kind of films as, as we all have i think we're all pretty much of the same generation it's just the, the sort of you just get the feeling that you're just listening to a you know a, a nice relaxed but also really in depth conversation between two friends who just know a shitload about films and it is just <laughs> it's just a brilliant podcast
1: and we genuinely do love it. It is the uh, well, thank you, and I appreciate when you guys did shout us out uh, on that on that episode. The compliment that we get most often, and it is in our opinion the best compliment we can get, which is. Uh, pretty much what you guys said on that episode, which is like you're just sitting around talking with your friends about movies. And that was definitely not fully the intention, but definitely something we had in mind when we did it. Dion and I have been best friends since 1997 when we were college roommates. Uh, so uh, I think that helps a lot with creating that kind of atmosphere because we are just like, you know, two friends that uh, even though we, you know, met. Somewhat after the what I would consider like the sleepover age, we did live in a tiny room together. So uh, we did have many a sleepover and we were still in our teens when when we met. So I think that kind of chemistry that comes with such a long relationship uh, that was forged through movies, really kind of. Uh, helps make our show what it is so one thing i do want to say is that i am extremely jealous that you guys talked about star trek the motion picture <laughs> See, you know that was that, that was an episode that i think i had in the back of my mind
2: um and this sort of gives our listeners a bit of a sort of idea as to how the the genesis of some of our episodes come about i was just formulating in my head the fact that you know, we were always going to cover star trek and i think if anything neil and i had discussed um I think this year obviously is the is the 25th anniversary of Star Trek Generations which isn't a lot of people's anywhere near their favorite Star Trek film but for me Neil and I that is one of our favorite star trek films period we just we just love the film you know i wrote a, a big long lavish defense of it for film 89 um you know we've we've, we've discussed it at length on on you know the wrong real track chat group with the likes of you know becky deanna and uh, adam rakoff who were, who were huge star trek fans i was thinking well there's actually a growing swell on twitter about star trek the motion picture because obviously people were gearing up towards the 40th anniversary And i thought it's not the popular choice. But I know there's a hell of a lot more people that like the film now than back when I first got into Star Trek, where it was kind of yeah. seen as you know, one of the poorer relations of, of certainly the, you know, the Star Trek films. And then all of a sudden, <laughs> Bill Scurry messages me saying, Look, I don't know if you're thinking of doing maybe an episode about Star Trek motion picture, but if you are, please have me in mind to come on board. At which point... I think, John, didn't you actually message me and say, look, you know, I really would like to do an episode on Star Trek, the motion picture. And I was like, well, funny <laughs> yes. enough, yeah, I've just had a conversation <laughs> with, with Bill. I'm not going to let you guys fight over it, so why don't I have you both on? It was just a, a pleasure to record. It was a really popular episode. We had so much great positive feedback about it. And I was expecting a lot of people to be saying, why have you guys picked this film? It's, you know, it's nowhere near as good as some of the films you could have talked about. But as we try to do, just to keep things sort of timely, we like to tie in with the anniversaries of films. So, you know, being the 40th anniversary and, and obviously the first Star Trek film. And, you know, there's a, a good bit of behind the scenes stuff, which I always like to talk about. And, yeah, so I take it then, Blake, you're
1: a fan of uh, the motion picture. I am, yeah. We did uh, Star Trek VI, I think, last summer on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. I Much like you guys, I mean, I don't want to go off like on the Star Trek Shoot, uh, slant because you guys already talked about this. But like you guys, I kind of grew up adopted into the Star Trek fandom. That my parents were fans, and so uh, I grew up in love with the the original series, and then uh, and then the movies and stuff. And uh, I revisited mo- the motion picture. I don't know, maybe about uh, eight years ago, because it used to be on a lot when we were kids on like Sunday night network television as a Sunday night movie event. And I just uh, absolutely loved it when I kind of revisited it. I never hated it, but mm-hmm. when I revisited it then, I just was like, "Holy crap!" <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this, movie, this movie's kind of amazing. <laughs> no,
2: you know, it was it was a fun episode to do, and I, I could talk Star Trek all day long. And I could I could I could do uh, easily do a two hour episode on each and every one of the films, even Star Trek Five. You know, it, it's just something that you know I, I just find endlessly interesting. I've been a Star Trek fan. You know, probably since I was maybe about 10 or 11, and, you know, starting off with the um, the original series and then very quickly getting into into Next Generation. You know, I know a lot of people who sort of felt that this thing of Star Trek versus Star Wars and the fact that, you know, you can't love both absolute nonsense. They're both science fiction, although I think, you know, one is certainly far more science fantasy, and I think Star Trek is more grounded in reality. I think we're already planning on our, on our next Star Trek episode, and um, luckily enough... Uh, a few of the film eighty nine crew, four of us, have secured tickets to actually go to uh, a screening of Star Trek: Through the Wrath of Khan next March with a Q and A uh, hosted by William Shatner. So uh, we absolutely cannot wait for that. Awesome!
1: If you ever do, if you oh, ever do, great. Star Trek
2: Five, <clears throat> count me. A... Okay, we'll do. <laughs> going away from Star Trek and, and onto the film we're going to be talking about tonight, John. Obviously, this was a film that you know you were really keen to talk about. It is, of course, Rio Bravo, the nineteen fifty nine Howard Hawks. Western starring the Duke himself, John Wayne. Tell us a little bit, John, about why you picked this film. And if you could, just um, for, you know, I'm hoping if people haven't seen the film, they're gonna go away and watch it now because we are gonna be completely blowing the film apart. This is a 60 year old film. We're not gonna be tiptoeing around spoilers. So please, you know, if you want the full experience of this episode, turn us off, go watch the film and then come
0: back. But John, if I can just hand over to you just to take us through a little brief synopsis of Rio Bravo. Sure. Um, yeah, I'm going to start off with a little bit of background on the film, because as far as plot goes, there's not much to it, uh, but that's part of why I, I love the movie. But in 1958, uh, when filming began, Howard Hawks uh, returned for to Hollywood after sort of a self-imposed exile in Europe uh, because of the critical and commercial failure of his 1955 film Land of the Pharaohs. He kind of joined up again with his friend and collaborator in the 1948 classic Red River, John Wayne. He had been... On a sort of creative and uh, fin- financial what himself, because even though 1956 we saw The Searchers, that year also saw the release of The Conqueror, which is one of the most notoriously terrible films of all time in which John Wayne played Genghis Khan. He would also do, um, in the same year that the film would begin on here... Uh, the Barbarian and the Geisha, which, while directed by John Huston, was another kind of big commercial and critical disappointment. Um, so both men were kind of seeking a sure thing. They reunited with screenwriters Jules Firthman and Leah Breckett and adapted the short story Rio Bravo by B.H. McCampbell. And after um, returning from Europe, Hawks saw that the media landscape had sort of changed. Television was blowing up and shifted much more towards these, you know, weekly episodic uh, televised stories where people came back because they loved the characters. The plots could be interchangeable, but the characters are what kept the audience coming back again and again and again, and that's also kind of shows in the casting of some of these roles um, with famous TV actors. Rio Bravo would be an Old West tale, but one focused on um, intense, intimate character drama and human interaction rather than intricate plot. And it also was kind of formulated as a, sort of a moral response to 1952's High Noon starring Gary Cooper, but we can get into the details of that later. Um, so the film opens with uh, a very drunk Dean Martin uh, kind of silently and desperately stumbling into a bar, laughed at by a bunch of neck cowboys. They toss him some money. It goes into a spittoon. He goes to reach into it, and the spittoon is kicked over by an unseen man who always sees his foot. The camera pans up, and it's John Wayne. Sheriff John T. Chance looking down in disgust at uh, Dude, his friend. Dude comes up, strikes Wayne with a stick uh, for such a for such an act, and a brawl breaks out. And the main source of derision for Dude, Joe Burdett, shoots a man uh, trying to keep the peace. Um, Joe leaves enters another bar where he is then arrested by a now-conscious Wayne, and that's sort of the central crux of the conflict for the rest of the movie. Wayne, aided only by the alcoholic dude and the elderly crippled Stumpy, played by Walter Brennan. As his deputies, they must keep the peace while holding uh, Joe, and, who was the brother of ruthless rancher Nathan Burnett, uh, in the jail until the marshal uh, arrives in town. Uh, they are eventually joined by the useful singing cowboy, Colorado, played by a very... Handsome and gloriously coiffed Ricky Nelson, Uh, but only after Colorado's boss Wheeler, played by Ward Bond, is shot in the street after merely offering Wayne help. Along the way, Chance will fall in love with a card-playing woman of certain reputation, Feathers, played by a incredibly beautiful and charming Angie Dickinson but it takes some rather dogged determination on the part of Feathers to get Wayne to actually admit his feelings. Uh, after some Heartwoman male bonding, uh, singing, therapy sessions about alcoholism and past trauma, and extra steamy dialogue and glances between Wayne and Dickinson, Wayne 51, Dickinson 26 at the time, a climactic shootout ensues, There's sharpshooting, explosions, and even assistance from Stumpy. I'm not sure if Rio Bravo knows how dynamite exactly works, uh, but... Uh, It ends with some redemption for our heroes and a pile of dead and wounded bad guys. Chance and Feathers and maybe Dude and Stumpy uh, live happily ever after.
2: Well, there you go. That's Rio Bravo in about three minutes. Fantastic. The end. The end. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The end of the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) One thing that I think Blake, you and Dion hit on in the most recent episode, which dropped earlier today, your episode on uh, for a few dollars more, is... By certainly the late 50s, early 60s, television had had basically hit a a boom. And so much so that it was actually affecting uh, ticket sales in in the cinema. I I think in your episode, you gave a statistic that I think uh, 40% of all shows on TV at that time were westerns. Um, I've pulled one from 1958 that says one third of all primetime
1: shows. It was uh, the the figure was it's one basically one third of all primetime shows were Westerns, but there was an estimate uh, that all movies made up to 1960 in Hollywood were 40%, 40% of those 40% of movies were Westerns up to 1960. And you know, you could believe that because I think at the moment, a lot of people
2: think that that's how Hollywood is going with superhero films, that every other film is a superhero film. And you know, whilst the, we, I think we are reaching a saturation point with that. I think, like, you know, how many times have we seen this before? You've had you've had film noir being, you know, the most popular style, and then that sort of gave way to westerns, and then you had historical epics, and then in the 70s, you know, you had disaster movies. There, there was always something that, you know, for a good couple of years, maybe as much as a decade, you'd have a genre that was... A, you know, extremely popular in Hollywood. And, you know, even in the 80s, you, you had, like, a proliferation of action films. Obviously, the landscape changed then because you had, the, you know, the dawn of home video. The, the golden age of the western. certainly, um, you know, I think was kind of peaking around about this time. And, you know, you, you, Westerns have been there from the very beginning and, you know, we're still getting them today. But, you know, I don't think you, you're ever going to get such a peak in popularity as you did around about, you know, the the mid 40s up until the late 50s and i you know i certainly think that rio bravo is one of those films that is is certainly up there with you know one of the the best examples of a western from that period one of the things about the film is it seems to have been howard hawkes's response to high noon a film which he hadn't approved of due to the way in which he saw that film's hero, played by Gary Cooper, going around the town and, and desperately asking the townsfolk for help, something which Hawks felt went against what a man of Cooper's standing should do. Now, Hawks, to me, he had a very clearly defined ideas to how a man should behave. Now, anyone I think knows anything about Howard Hawks. He certainly was a man's man. Would, would you guys agree?
0: Yeah, and I think he, he was a certain kind of man's man because, by all accounts, he was very quiet and considered and polite um like he wasn't boisterous or given to like yelling at his actors the way like uh, john ford might so he he had more of a sort of kind of quiet dignity about him at least i think that's what he the kind of persona he tried to project there are some stories about him being so nervous on the set of this movie that he would puke behind props and then kind of come out and be his calm cool self again Um, But, yeah, I think that's something that he... That's a persona that he definitely tried to construct around himself.
2: And, and, you know, the film itself was based on a screenplay by Jules Firthman and Lee Brackett. And Brackett, she only wrote 12 scripts, but the final one uh, was a little independent film called The Empire Strikes Back. Of course, obviously, this is, you know... Like you say, John Wayne had had a bit of a rough period, which, you know, incredible to think after, you know, from 1956 on, you know, after The Searchers, he would then choose some some quite you know poor roles that you think you know why did he ever go for those so you know coming back you know with Hawks with Rio Bravo and the film being a you know such a success as it was because I think wasn't it the, the third highest grossing film of 1959
0: yeah it was it wasn't the top but yeah it was like it was in the top
1: five you
2: no know, you know we're talking about the year that the year of Ben-Hur you know which obviously I, I I'm pretty sure that that would have been you know the, the top highest grossing film you know of, of that year You know, you also had North by Northwest. It was a a pretty strong year for film. I think we're in a period where we were transitioning from this sort of more kind of wholesome sort of Western into the 60s where you get, you know, certainly not straight away. Because you've got films like John Sturgis' Magnificent Seven, which is, you know, kind of your more traditional Western. But then... Certainly with the with the, the transition into spaghetti west, and things get certainly a lot more gritty, you know, a lot more cynical, and we get this sort of idea of the old West not being this romantic place and being this sort of cutthroat, really kind of nasty place.
0: There's definitely a lot of nastiness in this movie, like with the throwing the money in the spittoon, um and, and the way the the burdett's men have a very cavalier attitude towards murder. But I think what makes this movie Uh, much feel much more modern than previous Hawks, certainly Hawks Westerns, is just how genuine the friendship seems, Mm. like how tender the men are towards each other. Like Dean Martin cries and breaks down in front of John Wayne because he's just so despondent over his alcoholism and John Wayne really like sticks with his friend and pulls him through it and, you know, he – he went to the trouble of like keeping dean martin 's guns around just in case he ever kind of came back into himself and pulled himself out of his alcoholic stupor. Wayne kisses Walter Brennan in this movie like there's something very real in the friendship between these the four men that I think previous Westerns might have been almost afraid to tackle,
2: yeah. And Wayne, um, who in the film plays Sheriff John T. Chance, in, in what I would say is one of his most relaxed roles, in in spite of the sort of parody faces, and it was the last time that he would wear his, his famous beaten hat, which he'd worn, apparently, uh, since stagecoach in 1939. But what do we think um, of of John Wayne's performance in this film compared to his body of work leading up to Rio Bravo?
1: You know, what kind of struck me about his performance, his relationship with the Angie Dickinson character and their interactions were kind of like what really struck me. Like, he's so disarmed by her. (laughs) It's kind of fun to watch. And, and, And it does feel very genuine, but his frustration with her and yet, like, his, you know, innate, I get disarming is the only word I can think of off the top of my head Like he's very submissive to her as, at the same time as trying to be very uh, dominant at the same time. It's it's very fun to watch. And and I mean, it's definitely, you know, the Andy Dickinson characters is certainly in the mold of of like the Hawksian woman. But that 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 relationship is what really stuck with me on this viewing anyway. And everything John was saying about the relationship between the guys and everything. Yes, I mean, it's a, a perfect display of like you know, male friendship in cinema is is the way these three guys kind of interact. but that but it was the Wayne's relationship with with the character of Feathers that really kind of stuck out with me this on this viewing. Yeah, I I certainly think that this is the certainly one of the
2: I don't want to say I don't want to play down or, or in any way discredit Wayne for this, but it is certainly one of the the nicer, more wholesome characters he's played. If you compare him to uh, Tom Dunson from Red River and Ethan Edwards certainly from The Searchers, who I know a lot of people these days have got a problem with, um, you know, due to the what people call the inherent racism of that film. You know, I I think this is the the sort of not a word I would ever attribute to John Wayne, but the sort of sweetest role he's ever played. He's got a very strong moral compass he he's clearly a man of honor he 's a man who looks after his friends you know he and yeah like you say he he does fall without any question for you know the feathers character, whereas you know the John Wayne that we 've seen in the past, certainly in films like Red River. You know, and you know that film opens with him, you know, leaving uh, a wagon train and, and leaving behind the girl he's had a relationship with, uh, because he wants to go off and, and and set up his own cattle ranch. This is this is a different, certainly a different um, iteration of, of the the typical sort of hard nosed, hard beaten character that we've seen from Wayne in films past.
0: Yeah, and especially if you contrast him with Red River, that that's a film where by the end of entering the second act, John Wayne like loses it. He becomes Captain Bly on the on the planes like he tries to whip one of his cattlemen. He tries to murder some people and he's eventually like kicked out of his own herd. In Rio Bravo, he's a rock from beginning to end. He's the point that all the other characters sort of depend on and, and lean on and sort of kind of navigate their arcs around because they know they can depend on him to be the the loyal friend. Yeah, well, he's also like the patriarch of this weird family, yeah.
1: that that is kind of created. Whereas Stumpy is like kind of like the mother who stays home and does the cooking and mm. uh, is much more the nurturer. John Wayne is is very much like the father figure in this whole thing, and Dean Martin is like the eldest son who has like kind of gone off and gone astray and in a way has to come back with kind of his tail between his legs. It's a very interesting dynamic that's created here. Um, and it's not to say that, you know, a lot of Hawks's films have to deal with kind of male camaraderie and whatnot. But um, I just love the kind of the dynamics and even Dean Martin's performance. I mean, clearly he's not necessarily known for being like a great actor, but I think he delivers like a really fantastic performance and oddly enough, like a drunk, which is something that throughout the sixties he ends up playing for comic purposes on stage, Mm. you know, in like the rat pack performances as, you know, apparently he didn't drink when he performed. It was always like apple juice, but he always played like this, you know, funny drunk. But here in 1959, he's playing, you know, like the tragic side of alcoholism kind of brilliantly. Going on to Dean Martin, I'll, I'll just put my cards
2: on the table straight away. I, I think, hands down, this is Martin's finest performance. I think, certainly back around about the time this film came out, if you're going to portray alcoholism and you know a, a drunk on screen, there was always a chance and a likelihood that it was going to be done in sort of a way that poked fun at it. There's nothing at all about Dean Martin's performance in this film and about how the other characters react to his alcoholism that plays it any way other than, you know, a terrible affliction, something that's ruined this man who was once, you know, uh, one of John Chance's deputies, you know, then he fell in with the wrong woman, things went bad, and then he turned to the bottle. All throughout, the, you know, his performance in this film, there, there's this subtlety, there's nuance, there's there's this little subplot involving him where he's constantly fighting this addiction. You know, I just love the little things that, you know, that, the way he rubs his face when, you know, it's like as if he's trying to to stave off this 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 hunger for alcohol and and all the little moments in the film where you think he's going to give in and he's going to have a drink and and all along that the alcoholism is always a thing which is key to his character the the costume design that that awful jacket that he's wearing you you think what the hell has he been doing for the last you know kind of year or so to end up like this definitely is 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 certainly the best role i've ever seen dean martin
1: playing well i think it's important to kind of note that he's the only character for the most part that really has any kind of arc you know when you learn about yeah you know narrative storytelling and and screenwriting and stuff you know one of the things that i learned when i was in film school is that you know like your protagonist has to have an arc there has to be a change he has to be different from what at the beginning of the film to the to the end of the film and and though you know john wayne meets Fe- uh, you know chance meets feathers you know the only character that really has a substantial arc is Dean Martin's character which is you know in in some kind of like way really makes his character kind of the protagonist he's the the character that we open the film with you know he's kind of our vehicle into the story because we open the for like the first shot of the narrative is Dean Martin walking into this bar and you know, Hawks' obsession with professionalism, which is part of why he really disliked High Noon, which is that, you know, Gary Cooper's character is going around asking these non-professionals to, to help him. Hawks has always held at the peak of masculinity or or the hero of, like, someone who is a professional is of what he, what he does. And, you know, not only is Dean Martin's arc one of sobriety, but it's one of... Redemption, as in that he once was a great professional at this, as a lawman or a gunfighter, whatever it was, and and he's lost it. And his arc is partially because of the sobriety, want to become a professional again. You know the the scene that you know John hinted at earlier that you know John Wayne held his guns in case he ever. You know, he's like, well, I've got your clothes. I kept them to see if they would ever fit again. And he's like, well, I, I think they're going to fit. You know, that that's in the middle of the movie. Um, He takes a bit of a backslide after that because of uh, self-doubt and whatnot. Obviously, ca-
0: the, uh, the character of Dude, Dean Martin's character, is easily the most interesting character in the film. Definitely. And what you said about backsliding, I think, is something that is also u- unique, at least for the time in this film's portrayal of alcoholism. Because after he shoots the the gunman out of the rafters, he gets captured by Burdett's men because he's distracted by his own withdrawal. He can't keep himself together. And so you see an almost realistic portrayal of alcoholism in that you reach a peak of control and then you backslide, you relapse. Mm -hmm. And it really makes you feel for Dean Martin's character. And I think it's a testament to his performance that he's able to pull it off. Like, yeah, this is a guy that would play a cartoon alcoholic for comedy you know with Jerry Lewis and here he's given us a really heartfelt performance
2: Yeah, and I think at this time you know when Rio Bravo was made in 1958 Martin had only recently ended his working relationship with Jerry Lewis he'd made and then he made Rio Bravo and then following that he made The Young Lions and um, some came running pretty much back to back. But then he mostly gave up on serious roles after these. I can't think why you know he would have done that because you know maybe he just fell back on the comfort of,
1: of playing more sort of lighthearted roles. I also think, you know, the one thing that we, you know, forget as fans of cinema is that it is a business and yeah. his decision might not have been a decision. He must he might mm-hmm. just have not been offered serious yeah. roles anymore.
2: Yeah, well, you know, which is such a shame because he, he for me. I am a John Wayne fan. I have been, you know, since I was a kid. I I think that it's a great John Wayne performance. There's loads of subtlety and nuance to it. it. And, you know, Angie Dickinson in this film is fantastic. You know, we'll come to Ricky Nelson and Walter Brennan later on. But for me, Dean Martin is the absolute standout in this film. You know, far and away, he acts his socks off and it just makes me think, you know, how many more great roles like this could we have got from Martin in the right circumstances? But what do we think then of the the casting of Ricky Nelson as as Colorado Ryan? Because I think he was 18 at the time, a long time. He'd been uh, part of the Ozzy and Harriet family on radio and television.
1: Yeah, I mean, he was by far at that point in 1958 when they made it and in 1959 when it came out. He was the biggest star in the movie. Hmm. I mean, in terms of popularity at that point. Television, you kind of hinted at it earlier or said it earlier, like television had started and was gaining popularity and you know, it was a real problem for for Hollywood. I mean, there, there's a much big di- there's a much bigger difference between going out to see actors in a movie and having actors in your house, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, uh, on on the television. It's a very different dynamic of how an audience responds. And uh, and television was in its infancy then, so I mean, it wasn't even something that anybody had probably any idea. Or any thought as to what the difference was going to be in terms of how audiences reacted, you know, it was still a new thing. You know, the the idea of what you said earlier about, you know, one third of all television shows being Westerns. I mean, it's not not not, this wasn't necessarily the peak of of Westerns. Westerns were on the way out because Westerns were now a television, you know, thing. And the fact that we still had a couple of great Westerns, we're like Hollywood trying to hold on to that. And it's crazy to me to think that this is only five years before Leone would make Fistful of Dollars. I mean, it's really only five years. It seems like decades. It seems like totally two different eras of Westerns. As far as Ricky Nelson... You know, he was part of a family sitcom that I think started with radio and then became a a popular television show. And it's interesting that it is that he's from coming from that family dynamic because of what I was saying earlier of this weird kind of like family orientation that, that that the male characters kind of fit in this in this film. It's very much you know a lot of their stuff together is lighthearted it's almost like a family sitcom and Ricky Nelson is coming from that and he was a big singing star at that point um with all that said though he is stiff as shit <laughs> yeah <laughs> this film performance like box. i
2: completely agree and i've always thought this of Ricky Nelson's performance in this film even even when i was when i first saw it when i was a uh, you know fairly young i always thought yeah he he is the one that stands out to me as being the sort of the most—I wouldn't say uncomfortable, but you know—the the probably least experienced of, of, of your, all the actors on screen. But on my, on my most recent viewing, th- there was like this effortlessly laid-back, o- almost approaching naivety sort of quality about his character. Something sort of just clicked in me, and I actually, for once, thought, you know what? There's there's something about him that I buy. I think he's a young kid, but he's got this really natural ability that he is you know really quick on the draw really accurate you you, you look back to Hawks's Red River and then you've got Montgomery Clift's character and John Island's characters who are both these sort of competing sharpshooters really quick on the draw and there's like this sort of like fun sort of competition between them that you know you often think you know maybe that's going to you know, erupt into something else the way I see it Ricky Nelson's character is those two guys maybe five or six or seven years before when he's really inexperienced but he's really confident in his his abilities and i think it kind of comes across and then the other character sort of reinforces because you've got that little exchange between dude and john chance where dude says you know wonder if he's as good as wheeler says and chance says i'd say he is i'd say he's so good he doesn't feel he has to prove it and that is his sort of character summed up in two lines
1: yeah as stiff as he is there is something charming about about his performance Mm -hmm. and i think that's one
0: of the reasons why it kind of works it works for me just because i i believe him like it it's not the greatest performance of all time but he is charming he is charismatic and i i believe him that he and he doesn't have to show off and if you just kind of think about it analytically like this is a sitcom actor who's only on television because his parents had a tv show like this could have been an unmitigated disaster or he could have been fired from the film because we're supposed to believe he's capable of murder Better than these, you know, trained killers, twice his age. But in instead, I I buy it, and I I think that's that's enough for the character of Colorado. Yeah, and there was something
2: I was thinking. <laughs> every every time I watch The Great Escape, every time, I always think in that scene where Steve McQueen is trying to jump over the barbed wire fence on the motorbike. I always think, yeah, maybe this time he's going to make it. And when I was watching uh, Rio Bravo in prep for this episode, I thought, do you know what? the way this character's being played, the way he's written. Ricky Nelson's character is a character that's set up to be killed in the final act with him sort of being held in Chance's arms and sort of, you know, saying, get them for me, Chance. And he is, for me, set up to be that character, but then they they don't follow it through. And in a way, I'm glad because obviously that is playing to cliche. And, you know, I just like the fact that he just breezes through on this sort of, like, great skill with a gun and this sort of confidence he's got yeah rewatching it now yes he is a little bit wooden he, you know he's quite a bit wooden but i i like him and like you say you believe him and you know like i said this is reinforced in the way other characters deal with him as well you know john wayne is like yeah you know the things that's coming out of this kid's mouth proves to me that he's got complete belief in his abilities and therefore i'm gonna give him a chance
0: and i think a lot of that um confidence that we might have in the character is that John Wayne tells us to have confidence in the character. Like, there's a, there's a couple <laughs> hmm. lines where John Wayne just says, Oh, I see you got some sense. And you, and so, oh, well, John Wayne says he has some sense, then he must have some sense.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is kind of set up an exposition it? for sure. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So, what do we think of Walter Brandon as Stumpy? Because he was a bit of a Hawks favorite. He'd been in Have and Have Not in Red River. And he also brought with him his limp, which he picked up on the the real McCoys, which was airing around about the time that he made Rio Bravo.
1: I mean, I don't know what's not to like. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I mean, he's, he's funny. Yeah, you know, he definitely kind of supplies the movie with some uh, much not much needed because it's not a very serious like uh, you know bleak movie or anything. But he's comedy relief, and and uh, he's he's lovable. You kind of buy this friendship between uh, Stumpy and Chance. It feels like they've known each other forever, but yet I feel like there's something between, like, he wasn't as close to Dude, and maybe I'm just confusing Dude with, like, you know, the, the discussions about Dude, like, in different... With different characters, but you get the sense that, like, but my point is that, like, you totally buy this relationship that they that that they've clearly been friends. You know, maybe you know they almost almost as if like they were you know in the military together. If you know, if it was a different kind of movie, that these two guys, you know, there's a trust there and and a love there that um, I feel like doesn't really
0: get portrayed very often
1: in uh, those kinds of movies from that era.
0: I think this is the performance that I think um, so many cartoon parodies were kind of created by. And so, like, for me as a, as a little kid, you know, you would see, like, parodies of Walter Brennan in, like, Bugs Bunny cartoons. And I think a lot of that stems from this. Um, but, you know, I would have no context for where that comes from. I totally buy Walter Brennan's comedy in, in this. I think there there is a tendency for comedy, of especially westerns of this era, to be, like just really jarring and taking you out of the narrative but it feels like it's coming from an actual human being like especially when he accidentally uh, shoots at dude with a shotgun because he doesn't recognize him. Um, that sort of like stumbling awkwardness that he has afterwards coming from the guilt of, of that act feels like it's coming from a real person and therefore is funny and it's just a, re- a really fun to watch he is and he's kind of plays the sort of put upon
2: mother hen because it's a bit shitty really of chance but he just he leaves stumpy you know, in the jail, just just guarding Joe. Surely they should be doing this in shifts. But it seems to be Stumpy the one that's just stuck there, night and day, for for days. <laughs> yeah, you know, no, you know, no wonder he's so grouchy and he's always snapping at everyone. And you know, all credit to him, right? Show me a film where a character gets away with spanking John Wayne on the ass with a with a broomstick. Yeah, it's to yeah, little moments like that. Yeah, he is a fun character, but I've got to say. I did, and this is probably more to do with the sort of different dynamic between the characters, but I did much prefer his performance in Red River and probably because he's the sort of moral compass that sort of breaks away from, you know, the character of Tom Dunson because Tom Dunson just goes way too far. And whereas I think Stumpy in this film would probably stick through chance through thick and thin, there is something that is kind of a little bit, unins- uh, you know, unexpected in Red River when, you know, he says to Stumpy, what about you? Everyone else is sort of mutinying against me, you know, are you with me? And he said, and he's kind of says like, no, you've, you know, you've pretty much gone too far this time.
0: Yeah, yeah uh, there really is a lot of depth to Walter Brennan as an actor, uh, and you see that in a lot of other roles, including movies directed by Howard Hawks. It's just th- this one. His job is to make the audience smile when he comes on screen, and then John Wayne goes out and you know kills the bad guy, and so that is sometimes the lot of a character actor, and I think in in this role he he does it with aplomb
1: yeah i mean and even to go back to what john was saying earlier in terms of like the cartoonish inspiration i mean like if you ever hear dana carvey do like his old man impression which i think he doesn't like exactly the pets movies he's clearly just doing an impression of walter brennan
2: so, what do we think of Angie Dickinson as feathers? Because I think at that point, she she kind of yet to make her mark in film. I think she was 26 when she made Rio Bravo. And, you know, she certainly plays the sort of typical Hawks female character. I mean that in just you know, a purely positive way, because she's tough, she's funny, incredibly beautiful in this film. But... There's something, there's sort of like this dogged determination to her character. And she's also really comfortable in her skin. When Chance is trying to press her for the sort of, uh, of about what she does. You know, she's a card shark, she's a gambler. But she says, yeah, you know, I'm going to carry on doing it. Um, You know, that's what I'm good at. And you know, I really like that sort of side of her performance. There is an element of the whole feathers and Chance thing that I, for me is like the weak part of the film, which I'll come to later, but there's certainly nothing at all wrong with Angie Dickinson's performance. I think she's, you, you can easily understand how Chance would fall for her. She's, she's got this sort of, she's got like a tough exterior, but then with Chance, she kind of, I don't know, she sees him as kind of like her one
1: chance for sort of a solid sort of dependable man in her life. I mean, I think there's just sometimes you watch a movie, at least for me. I mean, this is from personal experience of the way I sometimes I just watch a movie and there is like a female character in it. And not to say that this is far fetched or anything, but in some in some circumstances, like in other movies, like there is there is something like very far fetched about the love story. But it works because I fall instantly in love with that character. And so, like, I totally buy it and and that's the way feathers is in this movie like i i'm in love with her so like yeah i can see that in like two seconds john chance is in love with her too because he's standing there in front of her <laughs> i'm just watching her on television yeah it's just impossible not to, you
2: know to like her character and, and you could just easily see how, how you know he would just fall head over heels for it. what i don't buy is that 26-year-old feathers or you know if she's playing around about the same age as Angie Dickinson was in real life in a town where you've got Ricky Nelson and admittedly an alcoholic Dean Martin but still you know how fucking smooth is that guy and she's gonna fall for a 51 year old john wayne uh that's that's the kind of the only part of it i think yeah i i don't i don't buy it i just it, it's it's like gary cooper and grace kelly in high noon and it's like jimmy stewart and, and grace kelly in in, in rear window
1: it, it's just like no he, he's, he's he's too old for her i could buy that she would fall in love with somebody of his age i mean you never know there's daddy issues clearly she had some kind of yeah, weird yeah. bad relationship with a gambler <laughs> I, but i the part of it that i don't buy is that she doesn't that she falls for him so quickly that she doesn't just leave mm, yeah like I can, I can see her like almost liking him better than ricky nelson or being you know or that doesn't bother me i the fact that she would she would fall for him so quickly that you know i mean i guess she's kind of just drifting at this point anyway so why not just mm. stay but that would be the part of it that, that that doesn't ring true to me more than that she would
0: fall for a man of authority in a small town I, I was just gonna say this guy who tried to arrest her uh upon first meeting her within twelve hours, she skips the stagecoach to stay in town so she can hang out with him some more and then like was is it that evening that she kind of stands guard outside his door yeah um yeah. like it's it's an incredibly sweet and selfless moment on her part but it, it is maybe a little hard to buy that she uh that she would fall that hard so so quickly uh, may, yeah. maybe that she's just been swindled by so many men among her travels and she c- comes across this man who's incapable of swindle that she's like oh this guy seems kind of interesting i'm gonna hang around here for a little bit well, you know, you
2: know I, I think Hawks is certainly you know this is not certainly not the shortest um, depiction of someone falling head over heels for someone. If you if you look at in Red River, Joanne Drew's character, you know, she meets up with Montgomery Clift, his, his character of, of Matthew Garth, in um, I think an attack on on a, on a wagon train, and literally in a few minutes it takes for him to join them to help them out, her to get shot with an arrow. All of a sudden, she's fallen in love with him. That for me is just like what really you know this guy she's never met before. But it was Cupid's arrow. Didn't you it see? was, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I, I think there's a little bit more time given by Hawks to sort of setting up why these two people fall for each other. So, you know, I don't mean it as like a criticism. It's, it's just something that I certainly picked up on, you know, watching the film most recently.
0: Yeah. And really, every scene with the two of them together is just. Absolutely delightful. Like mm. the the there is real chemistry between those two actors, and I, I I love the dialogue they have together. Even though a lot of it's recycled from *To Have and To Have Not*, in a different context, and you know now in color and you know in the Old West, it it has a different flavor to it. Uh, and so they're just fun to watch on screen. And so, and even if a, another young woman attracted to another older man in a Howard Hawks movie, who would cast women who were his type, it, it's a little disconcerting when you kind of step back and think about it. Uh, it. It's just fun to watch. It is. It is. It is.
2: What do we think of the sort of pacing of the film? Because I know a lot of people have said of Rio Bravo, it has got this just really languid pace, and I think it was the uh, the New York Times. Critic A.O. Scott, who called it a celebration of taking it easy. What do we think of sort of the pace of the film compared to certainly other westerns of Hawks's and and other, other films of the period? It's certainly
1: slow, but I don't. <laughs> it, I don't know. It didn't really bother me. Uh, it, any times I've any time I've watched it, I mean I've seen it several times, obviously, but it's never been something that's been like a real like a, something that sticks out to me. as I mean, I get it. I can see the criticism, and I understand where it's coming from, but. Uh, it's kind of like, you know, it's like Hawks' thing of the thing that when John was talking, you know, introducing the movie, which is like Hawks is taking note of with the advent of television, like plot doesn't seem to matter as much as character. And it's like I, I'm in to hang out with these characters for as long as I'm allowed to. So it doesn't really bother me that, <laughs> that it's just a lot yeah. of just like walking around the streets like patrolling. Like I'm just happy to be here.
2: Yeah, and like, you know, I don't yeah, think like a, there's- I, I don't think A.O. Scott actually meant it as a sort of criticism of the film. I just think it was like an observation of the fact that, like you say, Hawkes takes his time because if you're going to build this big sort of shootout at the end, then it's going to be far more impactful if you spend time with the characters if you've got to like them because then you're more invested in them, and then you know it it makes the whole thing of seeing them in danger you know that much more you know. You get more involved because you know the stakes are higher because these are now characters that you spend time with and that you care about. So I think yeah, you know, if if he is taking stock of, of the way television works with this long form storytelling where you're playing or, or you're spending time with characters week in and week out, yeah, you know, it, it certainly works. And all credit to him because this is you know, it, it's surprising when you look at the running time. This is actually a two hour and twenty minute film because as much as there's long periods of just dialogue between characters, it, it never feels like it overstays
0: its welcome. Exactly, and even with scenes with no dialogue, um, th- I feel that they're even if they're not essential to the actual story, they're essential to the characters. So, like it, in the beginning of the movie, when you have Dean Martin and John Wayne sort of marching down opposite sides of the main drag in the street, you can tell there's like, like mm-hmm. a psychic rapport that, between the two. Their 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 nightly patrol is like a ballet. And we need that time space to observe that as a as an audience. And you could cut it out of the movie and still understand what's going on, but the film would be far weaker for it. And I think one of the maybe the most important moments between feathers and Chance is when Chance finds feathers like asleep in the saloon of the hotel and kind of silently carries her up the stairs. It's such a moment of tenderness from Mm -hmm. John Wayne of all people on, on this woman that he's only in for a couple of days, but we buy the affection that he ha- that he has for her in that moment. And from then on, I think as, as a viewer, I was sold on their relationship from that moment on. And so I think that's why the film earns its running time.
2: Yeah. And I love that scene you mentioned John, of the dude and Chance just going out on their nightly patrol. And the way they split up and one goes on the one side of the street, the other goes on the other. And John Wayne sort of walks across that sort of front porch of that building and is, you know, clearly one of Vedette's men who is stood there, you know, watching guard. And the way that Wayne just sort of sides up to him and stands behind him makes him feel uncomfortable and just with a stare alone just sort of makes him move on. And like you say, it's a scene played without any words but it's just conveying this overwhelming sense of you know something's going to happen. When you see what happens to Pat Wheeler, you're always thinking, you know, these two guys are out, they're vulnerable, there's just two of them. And it goes back to the whole thing of, you know, this isn't Gary Cooper's character asking for help. Where Pat Wheeler says, a game-legged old man and a drunk, that's all you've got. And, Ch- and Chan says no that's what i've got that's what he's got and that's what he's going to you know deal with they are the tools he's got at his disposal and 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 through his grit and his determination alone he's going to get through it and you know i think that is hawk saying oh, that for me is a typical sheriff of this time even though the common sense thing might be look we're up against overwhelming odds you know we have to get all the good townsfolk to 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 rally together I think it it gives the film a far greater sense of urgency you know to, to sort of have these just three guys alone fighting this sort of you know as far as numbers go overwhelming force.
0: Yeah and I think that line in particular like there's on the page there's not much to it but this is why at least in this example um not all of John Wayne's performances are great but this is why I think he is a great on-screen actor and a legend of movies because he makes those words interesting. Like, that is a line that you remember for the rest of your life, at least as a moviegoer. But on the page, it the, what is that? But John Wayne is able to find a way to deliver it that makes it, like, indelible.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, one more thing about the the pacing of this film. Um, it just is another example of how it's, like, the anti-high noon. Because high noon is set to a ticking clock, and it's an hour and 25 minutes.
2: Yeah, yeah, is so it, yeah
0: it is. So it's the yeah. exact opposite of high noon. And so I can't help but think that's a conscious decision.
2: Was Hawks right then? Is it, was his criticism or his disdain for High Noon valid? How how do
0: we think Rio Bravo compares to to High Noon, which was made seven years before? I love High Noon. Like I think it's one of the greatest westerns of all time. But I also love Rio Bravo and think that's one of the greatest westerns of all time. I think there's room for all kinds. And if personal disdain motivates these guys to make a great movie, then okay. Yeah, I mean, I actually probably even like high noon better than I like this one. I mean,
1: is it valid? I mean, it's a it's personal opinion on Hox's, you know, uh, Hox's. uh behalf i mean who knows it seems crazy to me but it was a different time and hawks was a different kind of person what's interesting is that you know his gripe is that this sheriff is going around and asking common folk for help whereas chances john wayne's character of chance is kind of turning it away turning help away at any point that he can but inevitably you know he ends up getting help from everybody you know, like the 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 hotel keeper ends up, you know, running into the line of fire, <laughs> and certainly Angie Dickinson's character is 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 there. You know, she doesn't you know go out of her way that much, but she's there and sh- and sh- shaken up when you know by the result of what happens in the scene where she does help by throwing the f- the f- the flower pot out the window. It's like I don't know. It's a weird thing where it's you can have help from other people you're just not allowed to ask for it but also they're totally different movies you know Chance is the sheriff of a town that apparently nobody lives in I mean it's mm. <laughs> people just pass through it there's a hotel where like the hotel owner and his wife or girlfriend they live there as far as we know there's no other people that live in that town other than those two people which is also kind of bizarre
0: <coughs> and I I can't, I can't help but feel that there's A little bit of professional jealousy going on between um, Howard Hawks and John Wayne and and Gary Cooper. And also because uh, the screenwriter of High Noon, uh, Carl Foreman, was, if not blacklisted, at least accused of communist collaboration or having communist friends. And so, you know, John Wayne was an open advocate of running those reds out Mm -hmm. of the country. And so they probably looked into the metaphors real hard in High Noon and wanted to make wanted to make their own sort of political statement if or or moral statement against the the sort of chicken with his head cut off sheriff maybe i would prefer uh john wayne have not been such an ass when it came to the red scare and the the lives that were ruined as a result of it but uh it resulted in in this movie at least yeah
1: but also like the 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 character of chance though is i mean it's a less interesting complicated character i mean he's kind of you know like a in a way an exaggerated archetype of the western he's noble like yes there are people that good and that noble but it's also it's like an I idealized version of that character whereas in high noon gary cooper's character there's more um i mean there's more drama because there's more at stake and you know it's just it's it's obviously the, the intentionally very different portrayals of a sheriff in a small town, but there's less conflict in Wayne's character. It's less interesting yeah, because he yeah. is not he's not conflicted about anything. Like I said, like he doesn't change. He's the he is that guy at the beginning of the movie, and he's that guy at the end of the movie. Rio Bravo is not about John Wayne. You know, if you're going to pick a character that it's about, it's Dean Martin's character, which is funny because this idea of like liking the characters is what you know is more important than plot uh, in terms of Hawks's uh, noticing of television. But yet he gives us he gives us characters yes that are likable, but he also gives us characters that like are not as interesting. There's just like not as much going on. And so in that sense, it's like the predicament that they're in is what's kind of interesting, and it's the way they interact with each other. Whereas with High Noon, like I feel like it's there's more empathy because. There, there is more conflict with that character and and and
0: stuff. Oh no, no, I I totally agree because I think Gary Cooper in High Noon is yeah. another archetypical character because of how good he is. But he's almost disgusted with how good he has to be for this town of like lily-livered cowards who won't help him. Like he's just so desperate, and then they like, clawing. And every single person he talks to gives him more reason to leave, but he still refuses to leave. And the only person that like is providing support is Grace Kelly. Whereas John Wayne, he somehow seems unassailable, even if everyone around him, tells him is telling him he's doing the right thing, which is the exact opposite of I knew. There's just something so great about John Wayne's performance in this movie that his lack of progress as a character is still entertaining to watch oh sure you know I didn't really mean I I wasn't meaning oh yeah
1: yeah. or anything it just was an interesting when I started thinking about it you know the differences um yeah totally I mean everything we said earlier about his character and then their relationships is it's I mean this movie is highly entertaining and there's certainly no doubt about that
0: yeah, High Noon is a movie where like if I was in that jail with the three of them singing my rifle my pony and me, I would just want to put my feet up and like relax and enjoy the view, but I would not want to be anywhere in High Noon. Yeah.
2: So that that scene, the singing scene. Let's uh, let's break that down.
0: Yeah. It's, it's it's a 1950s Western. It's it's a, a big mainstream movie. It's just one of the, it's like quips in a Marvel movie. It's just the language of the time of, of cinema. And I just think I was charmed by it. And I, to me, to me, it's interesting also because it's Ricky Nelson singing with Dean Martin. Um, who are of two completely different generations. I think, looking back, it might be easy to see them as the same, but to people seeing this movie in, in the 1950s, it was just as sort of discombobulating as watching David Bowie and Bing Crosby sing Christmas songs on TV.
2: Yeah, no, I, I've heard criticism levied at this scene from quote unquote cinephiles saying that it's an obvious commercial move on Hawke's part you've got Ricky Nelson and Dean Martin in a film and then it's almost as if they're sort of pausing things to allow them to sing the answer to that you know form of criticism is there. yes you've got Ricky Nelson and Dean Martin in a film together if they didn't have a scene where they sang together I think you have a large portion of the audience saying hey come on you know Howard you missed a trick there yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great little scene, and I can understand how it can pull people out of the film. by just love it. And I think it's just
1: it just adds to the charm of the film. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I, yeah I looking agree. at it now, I don't know if you need two numbers, but <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, you know, there's you know, this there's this thing of like Hawks art archetypes and and the things that he does in movies and male camaraderie and you know this idea of a group of men that bicker but then they kind of learn. They, they, they find pleasure in hanging out with each other. I mean, it's all there when you analyze it. I mean, that scene does f- serve a function in, in that kind of analysis of, of a Howard Hawks movie. But, yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, I don't know. It's, if you're going to put Dean Martin and Ricky Nelson in a film together, like, how could you not? Exactly, yeah. My, my thoughts exactly you kind of have to i mean i don't it it is what it is i mean i don't typically like movies that it's not that i don't like the movies but when it happens within movies that i like whether it's just like this musical interlude you know whether it be you know butch cassidy the sundance kid or just like the weird like wine stomping sequence in in john frankenheimer's seconds where it's just like everything kind of stops for like a weird montage (laughs) this this doesn't Ha- it doesn't happen because it's it's in the context of the narrative, and it's not just like this weird sidetrack montage, but it's it's like it, I mean, it serves a function. I mean, Ricky Nelson is new to the group. Um, yeah. Dean Martin is finding himself again as part of the group and i i i feel like if you didn't have that scene maybe a scene like it wasn't needed but it's certainly a huge plus i mean i feel like in, you need some scene where the four of them bond somehow
0: yeah yeah it, it's and, you know. like the 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 scar sharing scene in jaws like you need a way for these men to find some commonality and in the 19th century Nobody had record players or streaming or CDs or, or anything. And so if you had a guitar, the only way you could hear music was to make it. And these are four men stuck in a room for what they think is like going to be three days. So they're probably going to sing a few songs. Let them sing some songs, guys. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm for it.
2: God damn it, I'm for yeah. it. Me too. Good. I'm glad we all agreed on that. So just as a way to sort of kind of bring things in out to to wrap things up about you know Rio Bravo before we move on to the next segment. Hawks Hawkes went on to to kind of make two pseudo remakes of Rio Bravo in nineteen sixty-seven with El Dorado and again in nineteen seventy with Rio Lobo. I don't think he was ever given an Oscar for Best Director. I think he was nominated for Sergeant York in forty-one and then he was given an honorary Oscar in nineteen seventy-five, but th- he he never won Best Director. But where do we think Rio Bravo sort of ranks um, amongst Howard Hawks' films?
0: I love Howard Hawks because he's so hard to pin down as a director or even as a stylist. Like, we've talked about so many tropes of Hawks' movies, like the hawks scene woman or, or the scene where um, people get together and sing. But he's he made, bringing a baby, he made the original Scarface, Big Sleep, uh, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and this one like he's there's just such a wide swath of genre that is really remarkable and so to me it's kind of astonishing that he never won an oscar for it and certainly there were less deserving people who did it but it, it's always difficult to understand what people were thinking you know back 50 years ago when buying tickets or make, making awards but I, I just think he's one of the most interesting filmmakers uh of all time really agreed
1: yeah it's interesting because he's he was someone who stayed independent during the, you know, the studio system. I mean, uh, all of his sound films, I don't think he was ever contracted to a studio, so he kind of in a way was able to just kind of take the jobs that he wanted. At the same time, I feel like the studio system was a place where at least the time of the studio play system because you do have other directors like billy wilder who do have pretty eclectic resumes it's almost like it was easier to cover so much different ground then than it would be now in in like the way the business is run oh just like get me that guy that does that for this job whereas he was able to like explore his interests or was offered things that you know someone of that made bringing up baby maybe wouldn't have got offered some other kind of movie it's it was a a super interesting time for, for hollywood filmmaking and hawks is certainly like john one of the things that i love about him is that he he was so diverse i mean for me you know my. Well, a, a real passion for me are those like screwball comedies, you know, that that, you know, like I'm labeled a horror guy because that's what I tend to talk about and get asked asked to write about. But, yeah, I taught classes in horror movies to at college, but I also taught a class in comedy. Um, so for me, things like bringing up baby, although that's not my favorite, you know, like pairing of Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, but like his girl Friday, like that's for me, you, you know, your yeah. question was like, how does it, how does it rank for me? Like, I love that those Howard Hawks movies, but the fact that you can love those Howard Hawks movies and then also love, you know, the big sleep and haven't and have not. And then also real Bravo. And then, you know, there's the think from another world which he produced and i mean it's it's a it's a fantastic career and maybe it's to his detriment in the context of awards that he was so eclectic because maybe he that's the reason why he was never really recognized because he did all these things that he didn't necessarily like now we look back on in hindsight he like, said like he was a master of his craft but then it was like you know maybe he could have just been overlooked because he did so many things he wasn't maybe thought of as a master of something specific in terms of genre or type of film. But now looking back, we can look at it and say like, no, I mean like, and it's why someone like John Carpenter i think loves him so much because i think Carpenter kind of thinks of himself in that way of like a craftsman a professional just like you know the what we were talking about earlier with like Hawks's affinity for like the professional i think Hawks thought of himself as a profe- a professional filmmaker and to him it wasn't restricted probably to one type of movie it was the craft of filmmaking and his ability to explore so many different types of film was why you know, we love him now, but who knows back then how it was looked upon.
2: Obviously, you mentioned A. Blake, and, you know, one of the things I've I, I, I wanted to bring up, obviously, we've got you on the show. You, you're a huge John Carpenter fan. You, you, you know, your, your knowledge of him is pretty much endless. What What do you think about comparisons between this and Assault on Precinct 13? Because a lot of people have said that Precinct 13 is kind of a remake of Rio Bravo. Do you buy into that?
1: When I heard, I first heard that, you know, twenty plus years ago but i believe it like i heard it in the context of like carpenter talking about it that Mm. way now i don't know if it's revisionist you know when you find references online that's like that it's compared to but like i in my memory is that like carpenter was like i was like i was remaking rio bravo and no matter what his intention was like to me Salto precinct 13 is not a remake of (laughs)
2: real bravo i think if anything it's um it's a remake of probably night of the living dead or something oh absolutely Absolutely.
1: Yeah. I mean we we did Assault and Precinct Thirteen uh a few months ago in Saturday night movie Sleepovers, and yeah, it's there's so much that seems to be pulled from uh Night of the Living Dead. What I do think Assault and Precinct Thirteen does is that it creates it uses like the structure of Night of the Living Dead for Carpenter to kind of pay homage to how he feels about Hawks in general, like the way the characters interact with each other, specific shots. Um, you know, he he uses the pseudonym uh, John T. Chance, which is John Wayne's character, you know, as the editor edited by for Assault and Precinct 13. I think when you look, when you watch Assault and Precinct 13 through the lens of Carpenter's love for Howard Hawks, I mean, it's undeniable that he's expressing that love in that movie. But in terms of a direct... Remake. I don't see it, you know, whatever his intention was like that. To me, it's not. But I can totally see things that we think of as very Hoxian as being examples in Real Bravo that kind of, you know, Carpenter's doing his version of that in that movie but it's more of an homage to, to me it's more of an homage to hawks in general than to anything specific in terms of uh, hawks work
0: yeah i agree i agree yeah I, I would just i was just gonna say like if i had never seen *Night of the living dead and then was told a solid priesthood 13 was a remake of rio bravo th- then i would buy it but yeah i just i just totally agree with like it it's a homage and has some aesthetic similarities
2: so i, I think we all agreed that you know you know, it's a fantastic film for a number of reasons. It the, the way it takes its time with the story gets us to sort of get involved with these characters. Um, you know, it it sort of makes things a little bit more intimate compared to a lot of westerns, which are all about showing you know, the, the big scope and the open you know vistas of, of the wild west. It is just like a you know a great sort of feel good film to sit on the sofa and just sort of get involved and, and get closer with these really likable characters. John, I'll just leave it for you to sort of sum up. Then you know what you think about the film, because obviously you know this was this was your baby. This was your you know a topic that you were really passionate to talk about.
0: I think I hadn't seen this movie in a long time before I revisited it before pitching the the topic to you, and it just took me back to just sort of like watching movies on tv with my grandfather who's a huge western fan for me as for uh, somebody who who in the past has kind of been down on john wayne for his his politics and stuff like you know back in my 20s when i was too cool for school and whatever um to sort of like fall back in love with john wayne again when i revisit the movie and be sort of reminded of his his charisma his physicality like just that spin move he does in the beginning it just like, like who else could pull that off Nobody. And, and it's just a great Western that doesn't need epic vistas, as wonderful as those epic vistas can be. It, it sort of finds a human way to explore American myth um, that I think is a really unique way of storytelling and makes this uh, an indelible film and one that I was honored to be able to discuss here with you two gentlemen.
2: John, I'm glad you brought it up because it's been, you know, we've been meaning to tackle a Western on Film 89.0 for a long time and yeah you know what better place to start really than Rio Bravo This episode has kind of been cut right down the middle into uh we you know as, as i've explained to john and blake uh the obvious thing that would be to do a, a favorite five section on westerns but bowing to pressure from the rest of the film 89 team they've said no uh, we all want to be on board when you you do favorite five westerns we all want to be part of it because you know i think we're all huge western fans so i thought well you know it would be nice to do a you know a favorite five section with john and blake so we've got blake on you know, he is an expert in horror films. You know, he's written about horror film music. You know, talks about, you know, a lot about horror on his podcast. So we are going to go for favorite five horror films. Uh, John, obviously, you, you know how it works. Uh, Blake, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to go around uh, the table starting at our number five and then working our way uh you i'll do my five you do your five then john does his or, or whatever sequence we choose to go then number four then number three then number two then number one if say for example i'm talking about my number five film and it happens to be the same as say your number three then obviously by all means chip in and we'll cover that film and then we'll just skip over your number three when we come around to it blake is this uh is this yourself making your debut here we'll let you go first what is your number five on your list of
1: favorite horror films well, you know, I, I told you that there would be disclaimers. I am awful at lists, mm-hmm. um, especially for stuff I'm really passionate about. And I certainly wouldn't think of them in any kind of order. So I'll just go through my list, uh, how I just naturally wrote them down, even though I don't necessarily, you know, I love I love all these movies. But uh, I would I, I guess I would start with Dario Argento's Inferno from 1980 three of my favorite filmmakers james over at the wrong rail he always likes to talk about my list because i gave him a very definite list when we met which was like my three my five favorite filmmakers are john carpenter dario argento david cronenberg buster keaton and chuck jones (laughs) so and i just like dario argento's films just I don't know. When I saw them when I was in my late teens, uh, oh, so many years ago, there was just, some, I feel like with him, you either like there's people that just connect with his stuff and there's people that don't. And um, it just, his stuff instantly connected with me. Though everybody, you know, loves Suspiria and rightfully so, for some reason, Inferno has always been the one that spoke to me. Um, for me, obviously it's the second of what was going to was thought of as as the three mother trilogy, was so it's in a way it's a thematic sequel to Suspiria. But to me, stylistically, Suspiria was the rough draft or uh, the prototype. And then for me, Inferno is where it's, he's getting to try it again and he's fine-tuned it and he's done what he really wants to do. I've heard since that he actually doesn't really like the movie Inferno at all. But for me, it just kind of, I don't know. I just, I love that. I love it. And I, I, I fully admit that for years I would watch it And I had no idea what the hell was going on, but I just loved it. Like there was like at least two or three viewings where I didn't even realize that there were two different female characters in the movie. (laughs) To me, it was like this bizarre, surreal assault. And that's what I think Argento's movies are best at is just being like very visceral. And I think the people that can watch his movies and fall in love with them are the people that can just let them wash over them and not get hung up. On the things that most people would think of as flaws, and when I taught a class in horror movies, even though I didn't show Inferno, that's how I kind of instructed my students when we watched Suspiria, was just like, let, like, don't get caught up on the, the 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 dialogue or the fact that you know the, it's dubbed. Um, just like let it wash over you and 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 abandon like what you think of as like good cinema and just let this happen. And some of you will connect with it and some of you won't. Um, But Inferno has always been ever since I really got into Argento, Inferno has been the one that's always kind of really stuck out to me. Blake, don't hate me, but there's not there's not a single Argento film on my
2: list, I'm afraid. (laughs) That's okay. There is going to be a disclaimer with my list, which I'll come to
0: uh, shortly. But John, what's your number five? I have a disclaimer too. Um, <laughs> uh, like, Yeah, me picking my five favorite horror movies is impossible. Um, which which finger do you like best?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. As, as we've said countless <laughs> times before, these lists are never anywhere approaching definitive. They're always just something to sort of form the crux of a of a, of a point of discussion. There, there are going to be certain genres that we will come to and maybe we've covered so far where personally that list will be definitive. But when it comes to things like westerns, film noir, certainly horror, I'm never gonna be able to come up with a definitive list because there's just so many possible choices for that favored five.
0: Yeah, and especially with horror, like, there are just so many, you know, oeuvres mm-hmm. that I love, like, you know, the Universal Monsters, Val Lewton films, Hammer Horror, the, the Poe films. like. But is The Wolfman my third favourite horror movie? Like, I, I don't know. But I, I feel like an ass if I make a list and, like, something from every one of those things isn't yeah. on it. Yeah, but that's, but that's, like, where, I, heft-
2: that's where I think. If, if it was going to be a list of best horror films, I'd be more pressured to sort of... Pick a more broad sort of yeah. coverage of all the different types of it. And you know, all the little you've got zombie films, you've got like you say, you've got Universal classic monsters, you've got psychological horror, you've got you know the more modern sort of torture porn type horror. There's so many different kind of genres within genres of horror. All, all I've done is picked my you know my five favorite at this point in time. But yeah, anyway, sorry, back to you, John. What, what's your number five?
0: Yeah, so. One of my favorite filmmakers currently working of all time is Guillermo del Toro, and I've had the great pleasure of being able to podcast about him on Hellbent for Horror. That was a huge honor for me. I don't know what it is about him, but he just has this sort of like wormhole into my psyche and my soul with the imagery that he uses and the stories that he tells and all the the, the clockwork and the bugs and the slimy tunnels and, and all that stuff in his movies. This is probably the one that I get the most like, uh, shit for, for liking from cinephiles, and it's Crimson Peak. Like, I love this movie, I, I love this the sort of like really on the nose symbolism of the archways are the same as the profiles of the characters, which are the same as the profiles of insects. I love the red contrasted with the white snow. I love the, the weird choice to have it be like the sexiest incest story on in cinema history. It's just like an incredible piece of visual art and atmosphere and I can't look away every time I see it. And I was able to see it with, like, one of my best friends. And, you know, she and I really both love the film. And now I even found a piece of jewelry inspired by this movie and was able to buy it for her. And she's actually worn it. So me, as a 35-year-old dude, (laughs) dum-dum <laughs> bought Julie for a, a an adult woman who wore it that's what this movie gave me and i will love this movie forever <laughs> because it's, so it's a really personal movie for me so I, I can't help but love crimson peak uh blake any thoughts on crimson peak
1: you know i am definitely i have i think a weird relationship with guillermo del toro's movies and and maybe it's not weird i think maybe There are people like me that are more afraid to admit to it. (laughs) You know, I have a weird relationship with his movies in that, like, I love him, obviously. Like, how could you not love that guy? I mean, his passion for the things that I'm passionate about. And he just seems all around awesome. But with that said, like, every single one of his movies, you know, I want to like them more than I do. I don't I certainly don't dislike any of them, but they just they don't connect with me i i find that like that one I, I is is i don't think of when i think of his movies in terms of this and i, I feel like i probably enjoyed that one differently but it's something like i always walk out of his movies and i always think like ah, like i i wish it was better <laughs> and i know that's sacrilege but like it's like i love him and i feel like his movies like even the shape of water like i walked out of that and I was like interesting but like it just he didn't carry the ball over the over the goal line for me. Um, and I realize that that's just opinion. Um, but, it, you know, at the same time, it's what I was saying with the like Gargento, like people just like don't connect with things. And for some reason, his movies just as much as I love him and and, and I find his movies like enjoyable to watch while I'm watching them. His movies don't stick with me. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate there between the two of you.
2: Because, Blake, I completely see what you're saying there. There are aspects of some of his films where I think, I wish he hadn't gone there, or I wish he hadn't put so much emphasis on that. Take, for example, The Shape of Water. I, I wasn't as invested in the central romance between those two characters as I should have been, which is the main crux of the film. I actually found myself gravitating more towards the... You know this sort of story, um, you know surrounding, uh, you know the the sort of Russian paranoia, and then you had, you know all, all the fringe characters and that sort of side of things. I actually found that more interesting than you know the central crux of the film. But aside from that, I still really enjoyed The Shape of Water. Unfortunately, I didn't actually see it when it was first released because I. Think I may have been a little bit sort of you know I, I I got to see it away from all the hype and you know long after it had, had, you know won awards. Do I think it was worthy of that Oscar that year? I don't think it was but you know I, I think it's one of his stronger films. You look then at films like Pan's Labyrinth which, which I just think is an absolute masterpiece. This is going to be an unpopular opinion it certainly is amongst the Film 89 crew and I've got a lot of flack from it apart from Steve who's with me. Pacific Rim I am somehow able to put aside that part of my brain that says, you know, the acting, the dialogue, it, it's all pretty awful because the effects which are being shoved through my eyeballs into my brain are literally making me gasp. I, I've i always found special effects and, and you know, I, I've got a good eye for what I think are great special effects and poor special effects and when CGI doesn't work and when different you know, effects technologies are put into use in a film in order to give the best representation of what the director's trying to achieve. And what Del Toro did there in Pacific Rim is just mind blowing. He is able to or or you know obviously the you know the, the work he's overseeing, you've got these huge giant robots fighting monsters, but the weight and the the attention to detail and the way physics are applied to these things on screen. I'm completely sold. You know, you've got this giant robot shoving his fist through the air and you're seeing the displacement of raindrops every little bit of attention to detail is is just flawless and from a purely visual point of view that film just fries my brain it is how that he brought that film in under budget i think the budget was about 200 million he actually came back um i think i think it was warner brothers who um who financed that film he actually came back and said look yeah the film was made on time on schedule under budget And that way, then, he was able to get extra time and money from the studio in order to do his 3D post-conversion, which, you know, any film which isn't shot in native 3D, if you do a good enough post-conversion and take your time, like he did with that film, the results, are they can be really positive. And having seen that film in 3D on Blu-ray, it is just an absolute assault on the senses. It is one of the most gorgeous looking films I've ever seen putting aside the, the plot it is just pure eye candy and I am sold on it. but I can fully understand how people just think it's complete nonsense going back to what you're you know how you feel about him John there, there's something about him that every time he, he brings a film out I want to go and see it straight away I love gothic horror you know from what I've seen of Crimson Peak and I you know, guess I'm playing my hand early the fact is I haven't seen it you know it's one of those films where it is very high on my to-watch list it's just unfortunate I've not got around to it unfortunately then i can't comment but i am a little bit embarrassed to say yeah i, I haven't seen crimson peak
1: well that one i think is particular for me like what i said it kind of like i don't like i don't think of that movie like in the same way that i think the other ones because like it is what it is and i feel like you know that he totally succeeds with that one so that one like I, I like that's that's an occasion where like i i really like that movie and i don't that one i connect with oddly enough my favorite del toro movie is blade two no. <laughs> but yeah that that one i think you know it's hard to deny it's hard to argue that you know crimson peak in terms of it's it's like it's a very deliberate thing and he certainly like goes for it and you know i feel like there's there's nothing left on the table in terms of like coming short on that particular one john going back to what i was saying about pacific rim there i love big monster movies
2: you know I, i love like the godzilla films from the 50s Is it a case of, I put aside other sort of, you know, things I usually look for in a film because I'm being given such extreme great visuals from Pacific Rim that I'm willing to sort of give it credit for some of this misgivings elsewhere. Is it the case with Crimson Peak being this sort of gorgeous looking gothic horror that you're able to put aside other, you know, flaws the film may have? I, I do love what he does
0: with the characters because he does do this really interesting like inversion of like the damsel in the in distress m- motif where um Charlie Hunnam's character ends up being the damsel in, in distress and you have your your main character having to save him and you know she's the one who initiates the sexual relationship with her husband who has been sort of weirdly avoiding her uh we find out why later g- g- the exploration of gothic horror in this very independent-minded female protagonist, uh, I think, is a really interesting way to explore the genre, especially when you know, the, the, like the ultimate gothic story is probably Jane Eyre, and Jane Eyre is anything but independent and uh, extroverted or forward-thinking or looking to make a life o- on her own. As as much as I love that story in that book and the several film adaptations of it, and you know, just and, and the way he uses color in that film to sort of symbolize like the old world and the new world i think uh uh, appeals to me as well so i think there it has more going for it than just the visuals and i think pacific rim has some wonderful visuals that gets me to turn my brain off and and enjoy it for the kick-ass monster movie that it is but i i do find that crimson peak and the characters and the horror in it uh, go deeper cool
2: okay my little disclaimer with my list The five horror films I've picked have basically pushed out other films. If I'd gone broad, I would have included in this list films which are going to crop up on other lists. And are going to crop up or have been the subject of episodes either I've already done or episodes that we're going to do. So in order to avoid repetition, I've gone for horror films that are horror films first and foremost. So that's pushed out films which... If I were to go broad, they would definitely be in this list. Films like John Carpenter's *The Thing*, which obviously you know I've spoken about on episode three with Martin Kessler, it's one of my all-time favorite films. Definitely, it's in my top ten favorite films of all time. Another film which you could argue certainly is horror, and having seen it again recently in the cinema with my eight-year-old son and seen his reaction to it, it definitely is horror. Is *Jaws*? Next year is the forty-fifth anniversary of *Jaws*. Not to give things away, but we are going to be covering that in a big way on the podcast. So I pushed that off. Uh, and again, to avoid repetition, uh you know, myself and Steve a- Steve Amos have appeared on an episode of Wrong reel where we discuss Alien and its many sequels. Alien, again, for me personally, the way I like to see it is is a science fiction first and foremost with very strong horror elements. So putting it under the bracket of sci-fi, I've pushed that one out. And then again, going along that same sort of way of thinking. I've left out um, Philip Kaufman's nineteen seventy-eight invasion of the Body Snatchers, which, again, you know, it's it's kind of horror sci-fi, but for me, it's more sci-fi, so I am pushing that out. So that leaves me with five films, which certainly are not science fiction. The first, so those, you,
1: ch- so you cheated and made a list of ten, is what you are saying. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was. It would have been so easy to do that, but I've kept it at five. And my number five is certainly a film which I am not going to say too much about because next year is the fortieth anniversary, and I think you may well be getting an episode from us. But uh, if I'd done this list about maybe 10 or 12 years ago, this may well have picked the top spot. But because I haven't seen it since then, it's kind of slipped on the list. But again, this list isn't definitive. And for me, this is one of the most... Perfectly crafted and from a point of view the things that scare me, the supernatural being one of them Stanley Kubrick's The Shining is just one of the most terrifying films I've ever seen and just really got under my skin When I first saw it probably about 25-30 years ago. Where do you start with Kubrick? You know, He was a master of all genres everything he turned his hand to he, he could do perfectly well And I think there's an argument for The Shining being alongside 2001 certainly being his, his best film. Um, I know Stephen King doesn't like the adaptation at all and he's been very vocal um, of it and, and the differences between the film and the book are you know, are quite significant. But I, I think it's a near flawless film. I, I know a lot of people find Shelley Duvall's performance quite irritating. I don't. There's just things about that film with just little lines of dialogue which just completely terrify me and the aspect of Jack Torrance having possibly always been there and the way that is put across by Lloyd and, you know... Is he a guy that goes to the Overlook Hotel crazy uh, already or is he someone who is sort of kind of affected by this evil sort of spirit or whatever it is that is inhabiting this building and even saying this now it's it's getting the hairs on the back of my neck prickling up. This is the sort of thing that scares me. The supernatural, the inexplicable, something if I ever witnessed it myself would completely destroy my belief system. It's, It's an amazing
0: film and I just find it absolutely terrifying. I do love uh, the shining. Like it, it it doesn't make sense. Like because yeah, you know, why is Jack Torrance's image in the picture? Like it doesn't make sense that he's been in there since the nineteen twenties, unless his soul was inserted into the picture via ghosts, I guess. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it it's so an assault on the senses. And I I, I don't know if you've seen the documentary uh, Room to Theater Seven, but I I love. Even though I don't buy any of those conspiracies, I love that a movie can be such an intense emotional experience for people that they formulate conspiracy theories around it. Mm. Uh, it's it, it's a great one.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't really know what I can say about it that hasn't been said by a million people. It was a movie that I saw, you know, way too young. I mean, I'm, I was probably under five when I saw it. And five. (laughs) Yeah. I was probably like Danny's age when I saw that movie. And it is the sub, it is the movie. It's the subject of one of my favorite movie viewing experiences ever, which is when I was in high school, I was over a buddy of mine's house, the same friends that really inspired like, the idea of Saturday night movie sleepovers, which is because we would get together and watch movies all the time and end up sleeping over each other's houses and watch movies all online. But his my buddy's parents were out of town. I think it's, it just got like too late. So I decided to just stay at his house and his older brother and their next door neighbor had rented The Shining. And it was like the worst rainstorm that I ever remember <laughs> it, to this day. It just like was pouring sheets and it there was the, the lightning and the thunder was fucking crazy and we pulled the blinds up so that you could so all the windows were like you know not uh, obstructed so every time the lightning hit it was like the loom would the whole room would be illuminated and we sat and we watched the shining in those circumstances so the movie has always had a uh, like a, a soft uh, like a good like a spot in my heart but you know it's a movie that i don't think you know like Argento's movies I feel like it's a movie that you can't you can't really judge it on a normal scale like John was saying like you know, there's just stuff about it that doesn't make sense um, perfect no if you judge it on a more typical scale I mean there's you know the arguments of Jack Nicholson's character is fucking weird in the beginning and he's weird at the end but I don't think you can judge it on, the, on that scale I think what it does brilliantly and it's always my argument that people that don't like it is that like it masterfully creates an atmosphere that just grinds on you the entire time you watch it and it's just it's uncomfortable and it's one of the things i love about
0: it yeah great space. if I, if i could just uh, plug a uh, comic book um there's this great two mini series or three actually by Becky Clunan and Andy Bell and Jay called Southern Cross it, it's basically the shining in space and they do this, these incredible uh, things with color and with your uh, discombobulation of geography on the ship or the space spaces that it, it takes place on, that it uh, it's kind of modeled after Kubrick and also Alien. That just does it masterfully in a way that I have rarely seen on the page. Uh, so I think if you're a fan of horror films, especially of Kubrick's work, I highly recommend Southern Cross.
1: Cool, cool. So, Blake, what's your number four? Well, uh, since you brought up Stephen King, I'll put this one at number four. And it's a movie that, look, I get why there are people that wouldn't feel as passionately about this movie as I do. But I just come to terms, put aside any kind of – when I turned, like, 30, I put aside, like, pretension when it came to movies. (laughs) And so I just accepted. That I love this movie, and it's not even just one of my favorite horror movies of all time. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I'm willing to take not teasing from you guys because you guys wouldn't tease me, but teasing from other people. And it's Silver Bullet from 1985. I just, I just, I love it so much. You know, I remember I, 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 I I've done podcasts about it, and I remember the first time I was on a, the podcast. Uh, F this movie, I was promoting my book, and somehow it came up. And Patrick and I were talking because he also loves this movie. And he said something that I just – I find hilarious because there's so much truth in it, which is like he he said of Silverblood, it's like To Kill a Mockingbird but with werewolves. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like – and I understand that like people can think the narration is cheesy, but it's what I love about it. There's just something so – Poignant and words are escaping me of, 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 of the words that I'm looking for. But just like this relationship between this handicapped kid and his sister and their alcoholic uncle, I just love it. And I'm and I'm willing to overlook like the bad werewolf makeup and and all that in exchange for like Jay Chataway's score <laughs> And and the relationship of those three people in that movie and, you know, just even like stuff like the narration of Gary Busey's Uncle Red goes to get the the silver bullet made. And he's like, Uncle Red called him a old world's craftsman. <laughs> there's like there is something so cheesy about it, but there's just something so all of it just kind of like, I don't know, pulls on my heartstrings in a weird way that just makes me love that movie so much. Great. It's, yeah, it's
2: one of those films I haven't seen since probably the, the mid to late 80s, so again, I, I'm not going to comment too much on it, but as soon as you said it I was like, yeah, Silver Bullet. Of course, it was based on a Cycle of the Werewolf. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. It's, yeah, by, by Stephen King, yeah, which is one of his sort of, nobody even talks about that story anymore, but yeah, yeah,
1: cool choice. And it's the stuff that's not horror about it that I love so much about it. You know, it's like this weird melodrama about this family, and that's what I connect about it, there just happens to be a werewolf, too. <laughs>
0: yeah. I have to admit, I have not seen it, um but I was just doing a quick little Google search here. Uh, so it's endorsed by Jay Blake, obviously, and it has a metacritic critic score of twenty six. So therefore, it is going straight to the top of my to-watch list because of the combination of somebody whose opinion I deeply respect and a poor critical response in the nineteen eighties. <laughs> I am there. It's ah, uh,
1: it's not, it's not for everybody, but uh, it's totally worth watching.
0: Okay, John,
2: what's your number four?
0: Yeah, so th- this is a little more conventional than my uh, first pick, but um, one of my favorite filmmakers of like of all time really is uh, Ridley Scott. Uh, and I think a little bit like Howard Hawks, he's somebody who has just dove into so many different genres and has delivered us so many kind of cinema shaping films in, in his past. Um, Blade Runner is one of my all time favorite films, but uh, this one, I think, qualifies much more as a horror film than a, than a science fiction film. But uh, who cares about genre? It's just a great movie, Alien. Mm-hmm. It's given us obviously one of the great lead performances in horror film of all time with Sigourney Weaver. Um, one of the great all-time movie monsters. Um, when I, f- you know, first saw it, I this is an interesting kind of cultural phenomenon for for horror movies because I had seen Spaceballs. Like years before I'd seen Alien. So I knew about the chestburster, like a decade before I had seen Alien. And so I can't imagine being in a theater in 1979 and seeing this thing come out of John Hurt's chest. So I'm sort of robbed of that visceral experience, but still the combination of like, you know, the HR Giger designs, the weird psychosexual like Grotesqueries of the aliens and the eggs and the face huggers. Um, it's so insane, but so intricately plotted and crafted. Uh, like, I i love this
2: movie uh yeah alien um I, i'll say nothing other than i'll point uh, our listeners in the direction of either uh film 89 where you'll see i've written a very sort of passionate kind of in-depth piece on alien and, and i think uh you know the, the the first three sequels as well but also an old episode of wrong Real from may 2017 where myself and steve amos joined james hancock to discuss the whole alien franchise that was episode 267 but yeah, it's one of my all-time favorite films. I purposely left it off this list and, and sort of classed it more under the umbrella of science fiction just to make room for um other films which are for me more outright horror. But yeah, just it's one of the greatest films I've ever made. Ditto. <laughs> Ditto, yeah. There you go. What what else can you say, Blake? Isn't it? It's alien.
1: Yeah, I mean I love it. I mean, I feel like on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers recently I've been talking a lot about this notion of And this was more of a notion back when I was young and had dreams of making movies and was in film school. That There were movies that I would watch that just made me want to make movies. Mm -hmm. Movies that just like when I watched them, I was excited by the notion of making movies. The first Mad Max is like that for me. They're usually movies that when you watch, you can tell that they're done on a budget, but something great is, is achieved. Like A Fistful of Dollars, Alien, certainly in a league of its... You know, in a different league in terms of budget and stuff, but there is something about it that's like you can tell that this isn't like this huge movie, and yet it's so damn cool, and it's so damn effective, and it's so awesome. Um, one of the reasons why, you know, I, and it's something that I don't discuss with Dion on Saturday Nightmare movies sleepovers uh, very often because when you have a relationship as long and as close as ours. You try to avoid conflict any way you can when you're trying to keep a show going for five years mm-hmm. but i feel, feel like one of the reasons why we haven't done an alien movie on saturday Night movie sleepovers yet is because i know that his favorite is the second one and i have no desire to talk about that movie like i would want to do the first one like so uh, i'm also very passionate about alien uh, as well. I mean it's it's undeniable. I mean there's, is there really anybody out there with uh, that has any th- th- there is any way I could respect them that doesn't like it. <laughs> 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 I mean I can see people having problems with it but it's like jaws for me. It's like wh- yeah. what can you really
0: what like what's the argument against it really? It is Haridine Stanton and Yafid Kato. I mean what's not to Well love? no it, it it's
2: got for me hands down. The single greatest cast of any film ever because you've got all seven of those actors completely fulfilling the roles expected of them and moreover they're completely convinced that they are just seven people plucked from various backgrounds and have been put into space for a couple of years with each other. You get all the tension, the, the sort of hints at possible things going on in the background. You know there's a hint that Um, Maybe there's a little sort of love triangle between um, between Ripley, the the captain Dallas, and Veronica Cartwright's character. You know, there's so much. And you, you've got like this little class structure as well. You've got um, obviously Harry Dean Stanton and Yaphet Koto are, are the sort of engineers. They're on the lower sort of rungs of the class. And there's there's like the, this this friction between like them and Ash, and, and friction between those two. You know the visuals and the alien and the creature design, all of Giga's work aside, the cast and and the performances of those seven actors. Just you know, for me, that is the thing that makes this just such an just incredible film.
0: Agreed. Totally.
2: So my number four, um, being a Brit, I've had to go for a Brit Horror. It's a film that I haven't always loved and when I first saw it I was a little bit flummoxed by it but over the years it's kind of gone under my skin. It's one of those films where there is only a film like this. Yes, it's been remade. I'm not even going to mention the remake. It is a little film unto it itself which is unlike any other film I've ever seen. Um, one of this year's biggest sort of um, horror releases it kind of takes a few coups from this film but it is 1973 The Wicker Man. It's it's a film about a police sergeant who is sent to a little Scottish island to investigate the disappearance of a young girl. Uh, I'm not going to give the plot away for anyone who hasn't seen it because there is a pretty big twist. For those who have seen it and want to hear my detailed thoughts on it please go on film89.co.uk put in The Wicker Man into the search bar. It's a film I have written a big piece on it's just magnificent. It's it's not a, a conventional horror in so many ways. There, there's there's no haunted house. There's no sort of evil sneering you know blood sucking villain. Even though the film's got Christopher Lee in it, the the film's central you know villain, so to speak, is you know a very sort of well mannered, erudite, good meaning person in a way. You know what this sort of plot he's put in place is just to sort of help his islanders out and and get their crops growing again. But there's just so much about this film I love that the music, you know, the songs like Willow's song, but the the song which Britt Eklund is using to seduce Edward Woodwards character, it's just beautiful music. It's just one of those things where you know the songs get under my skin, they get into my head like those those sort of brain bees that once again you're sort of humming them all day. It's just a remarkable film, and that that final ending. It's not you know a scary film per se, but you know I do get chills. You know at the end where and again you know I'm, I'm giving it away for people who haven't seen the film and and for those who have they'll know exactly what I'm talking about that final image of that burning wicker man is it, just incredible and for a film that only runs for I think about 88 minutes it, it's just very efficient very effective and you know just by far one of my favorite horror films and one of my favorite British films I think
0: yeah I couldn't agree more there's something so unique and uniquely uncomfortable about that film because there are very few. Like scary moments in it, mm. but it's just this ramping up of tension and just being uncomfortable in this weird town. And you see the your protagonist, who's just like an asshole, um, throughout the whole film, just make wrong decision after wrong decision after wrong decision. And if he just made one right decision, he could maybe avoid horrible death. Uh, but it, but you're just sort of hypnotized by the performances and by the music and by you know Christopher Lee yeah yeah it's it's one of my favorites as well
2: it's just one of those films that you watch a film with a big twist you you know you watch a film like the usual suspect or you know the Empire Strikes Back and once you've seen that film and you know the twist it's very difficult to watch it again and get that same effect but every time i watch the wicker man my brain is able to somehow put things aside like i I get a little bit of that feeling i first got when i first watched the film of what the hell is going on you know what is the story behind this really odd behavior of all of these people yes it it is quite obvious now watching it on you know the umpteenth viewing what is going on and you he should have really seen the signs but you know the way it, it the way the film is executed is is just fantastic and i i got to say it one of christopher lee's finest performances and i think it was you know christopher lee was he wasn't very flattering when he was interviewed about his time you know with, with the hammer horror films and he sort of kind of looked down upon them even though you know they 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 were very sort of positive for him you know i have heard him say that the wicker man is certainly one of his favorite films that he's ever made and you know you can see why it's just fantastic you know we haven't said anything about the remake <laughs> well,
1: well the, re- the remake what i will say about the remake is <laughs> it's a great comedy running around in a bear costume punching women in the face i mean at the <laughs> what the fuck there's so <laughs> much there's so much violence towards women in that remake what the hell were they thinking <laughs> Uh, I don't really have anything more to add to it. I mean, I feel like you guys did a a, a pretty good job of pointing out everything that I, too, love about that movie. You know, I would just warn people that haven't seen it that, like, it's not a conventional horror movie. And I think if that's what you're looking for and that's why you're watching it, then, you know, you could be disappointed by it. (sighs) I have a lot of love and respect for movies that are just unique you know movies that you point to would be like you know there is uh for instance, like this is not on my list but like you could you watch a movie like phantasm and you're like whether you like it or not you have to say like holy shit like there's no to this day there's no other movie like phantasm mm-hmm. and i feel like wicker man there's a little bit of that like there's no movie quite like it it's like this weird mystery and you're you know you're not you know in and sometimes like suspense works in that in a way that like the audience knows more than the main character and you're waiting for things to, for him to catch up like it's it doesn't work like that for the most part. And I really kind of love and respect that about it. And it's it is a very like fascinating ride to go on. Agreed, agreed. So that's my number four. Blake, what's your number three? Uh, you know, when John was talking about you know, with John's disclaimer, it was like, you know, he likes movies and all kinds of different types of horror movies. Um, you know, there are definitely very specific subgenres or types of movies that I'm drawn to. And one of them is what, uh, you know, I guess could be called like the sympathetic monster. And I actually guessed it on an episode of Hellbent for Horror where S.A. Bradley and I talked about this very subject. And a movie that when I saw it, when I was probably like 18 or 19, uh, had just been re released on video by, on VHS by Anchor Bay. And I, my true love for horror was just, I was starting to take it really seriously for the first time. Um, and it's George Romero's Martin
2: hmm. from
1: 19. 19- 78. Uh, this idea of a killer, a serial killer, much like Bill Lustig's Maniac, which I also love from 1980. Th- th- those kinds of movies were types of movies that I had never seen before. You know, I was growing up when you're our age, uh, growing up meant having restriction on what was available to, to be watched. It's not like today where you can find anything. You know, it's just a matter of how long, how hard you want to look for it and how much you're willing to spend. Back then you had what was in your video store and you yeah. had what your friends knew. And, you know, I, I saw Martin when I was like 18, 19. Uh, there was all those movies that I discovered at that time that were horror movies that to this day are are still really important to me because they were the movies that shaped the way I thought about horror movies in a serious way and this weird story about a kid who thinks he's a vampire or is he a vampire uh, in this, you know, broken down Western Pennsylvania town <laughs> uh, and, and like the crazy uncle who believes it's part of a family curse. Uh, but this idea of having sympathy for someone that does something awful is something that really struck me as amazing when i was a teenager when i think something like that can be amazing when you've never experienced it before and and it, and it was the movie that made me fall in love with george romero it wasn't the zombie movies and it wasn't creep show it was martin that made me fall in love with george romero's movies i just uh it's a movie that's very special to me uh, in terms of my development of, uh, as a as a film fan and a horror fan
2: yeah it's um it's not a film i've seen since God, probably the the early to mid-90s when I was just doing a massive dive into George Romero, so yeah, way over 20 years since I've seen the film. Probably one I should uh, definitely re-watch, and I've certainly heard you talk about it, you know, numerous times before on podcasts and...
0: Yeah, uh, much to my great guilt and regret, that is one that I have not seen. I, I keep almost seeing it, and the universe seems kind of conspiring to keep me <laughs> away from it, but I'm definitely going to have to try and um, make a bit more of an effort.
1: What I will say about it is that uh, again, for people that haven't seen it. And and this is something that I experienced firsthand when I was in film school and, and I was, and I had, you know, I wasn't teaching, but I was in a class that talked about horror movies. It's incredibly dated. I mean, it's so low budget that you can't get over like the fashion and the fact that people, there's a lot of people in it that probably weren't actors. And it was, it was an experience watching it in class with Dion Baya, who's in you know, and also the Pink Smoke guys were in that class, Chris Funderberg and John Cribs, you know, watching that film with an audience who just laughed through the whole damn thing because they couldn't get over like the fashion and some of the cheesiness of the delivery of the lines. Uh, so I would say that, you know, for people that haven't seen it, um, not so much people like you guys who, who you know, are just like huge film lovers and, and probably are, are used to you know, putting aside, <laughs> putting things into context. Uh, that's something about that movie. Yes, there are funny things about it. If you can look past the the, the cheesy campiness of it, uh, to me, it's it, it's really kind of a, an amazing... And another movie that's pretty unique, you know. There's, there's not a whole lot of movies like it. So
2: what are we on now? Uh, John. John, you're number three.
0: I think this is a, a direct connection with Howard Hawks. You know, he produced... The Thing from Another World in 1951, and one of my favorite filmmakers uh, did a remake of of that film with The Thing. And what hasn't been said about this movie, I don't know. I know Jay Blake has said many more eloquent things than I could about how great this movie is. But um, this is another one where we're just sort of left with these characters and, you know, with – Establish this great affection for them, and then see them torn limb from limb by this, like, being a cyclopean madness, you know, from space. In in this, you know, would would become an arctic, an antarctic hellhole. It totally redefined, in my opinion, how special effects were done. I don't know if it did because it was a financial failure, and I, I think it's the sort of pinnacle of practical effects uh, on screen. And I think it hasn't been equaled in, in any way uh, especially in the horror genre as far as visual effects go um, but then you, you have you know the performances from, from the cast which is an incredibly diverse cast of characters and actors and actor types to like ground this like in the insane visuals is a film like no other. And it's so devastatingly, devastatingly nihilistic by the end yet nothing like the thing. <laughs> and, and it, it's taught me how horror movie language works because subsequently when people who were influenced by that movie have grown up to make movies now because of the thing, I'm able to be like, oh, you're stealing from John Carpenter right now. Mm. Well, at, at least you have a good touchstones. Okay, I, I, I'm in, I'm into it now. Blake, I, I, do you and
2: I need to say anything about the thing? Obviously, you, you've you spoken at length on Wrong Real episode 272, May 2017. That's a, th- <laughs> a three-and-a-half-hour episode where you and James Hancock discussed one of my favorite directors, John Carpenter, an episode I've listened to three times. So that's nearly 11 hours I've listened to that. It is hands down, I think, the greatest episode of any podcast I've ever heard. Um, obviously, you go in-depth about John Carpenter's the thing there. My only other question is, is it on your list?
1: It was my number one, actually. Oh, we've got to your number one already. Oh, there you go. But, so the floor is but, yours. But, I, but honestly, I have in parentheses another movie in number one. So I can still have a number one. <laughs> Uh, In terms of like, look, easily, you guys could shut up, and I could sit here and talk easily for two hours about the thing. So, Mm -hmm. uh, as (laughs) so, so I don't necessarily want to get going on it because it's a movie that i'm very passionate about it's a very important movie to me john carpenter is hands down my favorite filmmaker of all time and uh it's amazing how you can watch that movie today uh you know to to speak to the uh, to the special effects since john brought them up and they just they're still so awesome it really was kind of the pinnacle of of that uh, those kinds of like practical makeup or or creature effects i mean it just really doesn't get better than that and you know it it has a lot of the elements that we talked about with rio bravo like this weird family of guys that are held up in a place isolated and their relationships together and it's kind of a it's just it's a, it's a masterpiece and it's a movie that I am just like hugely uh passionate about like I have like 17 or 18 like original Mike Plouck storyboards in my collection of stuff that, that I've accumulated over the years just because I love that movie so much. It's probably Carpenter's best and it's you know easily in my opinion one of the best not just best horror movies but one of the best movies of all time like my dad for instance i have oddly enough like he's how i saw a lot of horror movies like the shining when i was way too young but as i got into horror movies more in my teens and when i got to film school he was very anti-horror you know he's he's very much like a john ford uh david lean film admirer And he'd be like, oh, horror movies. And I said, but, you know, even if he wanted to shut on horror movies, he would do it. But that's, I said, but John, I said, but dad, what about John Carpenter's The Thing? And he would stop cold in his tracks. He's like, well, that's a great movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So uh, it's one that even uh, people that, uh, you know, might be a little snotty about horror movies can't deny.
2: Yeah. I'm not going to repeat myself. You know, the third episode of this podcast
1: was dedicated just to that film. And there's a very early uh, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers episode where Dion and I discuss mm-hmm. it, kind yeah. of maybe in our first year or second year.
2: And you know, w- when I started writing about film probably about five years ago, there was a list of films which I was just really eager to write about and which I wrote about pretty early on. But there was this one film that I just couldn't bring myself to write about because I didn't know at the star. you know I always like to be objective but there would have just been so much gushing about it and the way I see it if I write two and a half thousand words about one film I've said too much and I usually like to trim the fat off it go through it and just get it down to about 1500 to 2000 words the final piece that I actually turned in for the site for the thing was 3700 words and I've gone over it. and I thought I can't remove anything because everything I've said about the film there is stuff that I think is relevant and I think needs saying it, it's celebrating Rob Boutin's effects the story all, all the performances from just an incredible cast just everything about the film is perfect and for me it, it's up there with the likes of Jaws and Alien and other films which I'm going to mention um, which have made my list for reasons which I've got to go back to earlier it's one of the greatest films I've ever made and it's one of my favorite films of all time so yeah uh, fantastic choices from you both guys so where does that put us now? Oh, it's my number three. Okay, uh, my number three is a film from 1982. Uh, 1982 is probably, I'm not saying this is the best year for film, but it's certainly my favourite year for film. Because going back to the films like The Thing, Blade Runner, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, E.T., you know, the list goes on and on and on. So many great films came out that year. And I've given my reasons why i have not put the thing on my list and um, because obviously I've talked about it before but the other horror film from 1982 which is a film that much like you Blake when you saw The Shining way too young I saw this film way too young it's Toby Hooper obviously there's a lot of people that say he wasn't the sole director of that film I'm not gonna open that can of worms now but it's his 1982 film Poltergeist it is one of those films that I saw way too young there's always been this part of me that just finds the supernatural absolutely terrifying i've got my belief structure set in place as to the way the world and the universe works and the way it is doesn't allow for that sort of thing but there's always that part of my mind that says yes you know it is possible it's all about the unknown what if there is an afterlife what if there are you know these tortured souls who could be evil or you know not benevolent and that coupled with this sort of Suburban setting, and again, I don't want to go into the sort of thing about whether or not Spielberg, you know, directed a large portion of that film, but it feels very much like a Spielberg film. It doesn't feel like a Toby Hooper film, you know, the, the little things about you know the furniture being moved, you know, the setup with the the doll, um, you know, the tree. This it just goes one from one incredible set piece to another, and then you go back. You've got a PG film because this is obviously before the days of PG thirteen. You've got a scene of a guy in a mirror pulling his face off and for me to have seen that aged maybe six or seven years old it absolutely terrified me it was just it was the most you know repulsive gory thing I'd ever seen and you know the whole film was just stuck with me you know things like serial killers and 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 people doing terrible things you know that doesn't always work for me because it doesn't it doesn't scare me it, it's the it's the unknown it's the thing about you know i think one of the most terrifying films i've seen in maybe the last 15 years has got to be paranormal activity because again it it, it plays on that fear that i've got and and poltergeist i think was the film that maybe put that fear in place so it'll always have a special place in my heart and i just absolutely love the film so that's my number three i'm
0: a real sucker for a good dad's in films (laughs) or 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 good dad stories so that that's why uh one of the reasons why is even something like field of dreams i'm always like oh yeah i'm gonna watch this movie right now um but craig t nelson in poltergeist is one of the best like good dads in in movies and so you have a performance like that and gives it great context and and makes the horror so much more real Mm -hmm. and i think because we're so familiar with like the spielbergian way of telling movies to see that that sort of like E.T. world being violated yeah. by these level and beans, I think, is what makes that movie so effective. And so, in that way, I think you needed a Toby Hooper to come in and, like, all right, I'm going to tear this shit down, and he did, and it was great.
1: This was another one that <clears throat> I saw way too young, probably around the same age that you did. I love it. I mean, I you know, I sometimes I get uh, disgruntled that there are certain people. In the podcasting and and film twitter universe that have become like the go-to toby hooper guys because i love toby hooper too (laughs) yeah and and this is definitely uh you know one of those movies you know i I don't everything you guys said about it is is why i love it i mean great score by jerry goldsmith and it's amazing
0: you even like the little tonal notes of, of of things like like leaving the tv outside of the motel room at the end it's just like oh that was the perfect choice for this moment right now it's it's a horror movie with real like grace and, and subtlety that wasn't a hallmark of toby hooper's like filmmaking but the fact that we got it uh i'm really grateful for
1: and one of the things i love about it is that like it opens like they're kind of in wonder of it they're playing with it with this force you know they put carol ann on the floor and have let you know it's like i love that it starts off as like this you know whimsical and then it just turns horribly wrong
2: one of the greatest things about the advent of digital and high definition television is we no longer have to look at that fucking static screen because god forbid anytime i'd walk into a room and see that on tv that would have to be turned off straight away because you never know
1: yeah so that's my number three um blake i think we're on your number two this was one that I wasn't gonna have on my list, but then as I was like waiting for you guys, it happened to just start on television, and so I was like, "Oh yeah, shit, that movie." And I don't, you know, I'm still reluctant to even put it on the list because it, it, I feel like in a way it's kind of closely related to my new number one on the list. It's a movie, another movie that I've just come to terms with. Look, like I love it, and it's still thought of. I think. As being underappreciated, even though I think now it's totally not, and that's Halloween Three: Season of the Witch. Oh shit! Wow. <laughs> yes. Uh, for me, there are certain kind of horror movies that like just uh, resonate with me. The 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 sympathetic killer being one of them that we you know I talked about with Martin uh you know body horror and 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 paranoia like the thing and and invasion of the body snatchers especially the 78 version is one of my all-time favorite movies and and like movies that deal with like spirals into insanity like repulsion are also movies that like i love but for me also like there's this it's not even a genre but for me there's a certain brand of movie where just like weirdness goes a long way for me like just like weird oddball <laughs> notions they just they go a long way and i love that like wicker man uh, halloween three kind of starts off like as this very conventional almost hitchcockian mystery very much in the style of of a giallo movie of like these two people that are going to get to the bottom of like how her father died and then it just goes down this rabbit hole of just like really weirdness Mm -hmm. um i mean a carpenter initially had hired um nigel neal to write it because he was such a big fan of the quatermass movies and uh and ultimately i think Tommy lee wallace rewrote it but i think a lot of that weirdness comes from like probably that initial nigel neal script and i know that like now it's you know, it's popular to say that you love Halloween 3 and I people still say, like like I said, like, you know, people still say that it's, it's underappreciated. I think now, like, we can agree that everybody who's going to love Halloween 3 loves Halloween 3. You know, people talk about mm-hmm. it all the time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> At one point, yes, lovers like people hadn't seen it or maybe people shit on it for certain reasons. It was turned on to me by a friend of mine who it gets talked about a lot on Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. He, I met him in film school when I was in college and our friendship started because of a mutual love for John Carpenter. And uh, he showed me this movie for the first time when i was probably 19 and i've just absolutely loved it ever since and i love john carpenter and alan howarth's score for it and one of our most famous lines of saturday movie sleepovers was in our episode for this movie dion said something like uh tom atkins proves that you know any man can be a leading man (laughs) yeah
2: what what, what is what is it with tom atkins and you know and 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 younger far younger beautiful women finding him attractive Yeah, how how the hell does he get Stacey Nelkin, who is like half his age in this film? You know, there's loads of things which you could say are wrong with Halloween 3. The fact that it breaks away from the Halloween sort of mythology, but you know, the whole point is that John Carpenter had the idea that he wanted it to be an anthology series. So, from that point of view, No, that's not a flaw. That's actually, you know, an originally intended thing The Carpenter wanted. At this point in the episode, I could be really sneaky and insert that song from the advert and just really fuck up people's day because it will stick in your head (laughs) all day. You know, I talked earlier about brain bugs, about, you know, songs from The Wicker Man staying in my head in a good way. And again, you know, I'm trying to push this song out of my head now, but it is one of the most infectious, most twisted you know, gleeful little bits of music I've ever heard, and you know the ending is really apocalyptic. You know, they they they're using you know, like um, little bits of dust from Stonehenge and these microchips to put in these masks, and you know it, it's really messed up. And yet, you know, the whole story and the thing behind Halloween three fits perfectly with our idea of subsequent Halloween films being an anthology series. Unfortunately. You know they sort of circle back round to you know being all about Michael Myers and you know just obviously gave us a load of sequels of varying quality and us being kind.
0: I I too have a great affection for all things weird. Like the 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 courage of a filmmaker to just, or or a series of filmmakers, or or just by a sheer happenstance, to just come up with something this p- puzzling. Like it's not just weird because I because th- I think anybody can do anybody doing a movie can make it weird. But the fact that this is a franchise, this is an established profitable property, and just takes such a left turn. I just think is so interesting and there are few franchises in cinema history that have done such a left turn and done something so memorable L- like that song good god in silver shamrock it's stuck in my head now <laughs> <laughs> and i i i, I, I want to make a movie about whoever edited halloween 3 because they probably had to hear that song oh, a million times and maybe they became Michael Myers in the subsequent sequels to Halloween because it drove them insane. Well, that that would
1: fit because it was edited by Millie Moore, who's got the same initials. So yeah, to give you an idea that my buddy who who you know showed me this movie, like I said, our our friendship was how it started was our mutual love for John Carpenter, but. He had, at the time, he had a like a van, like a, like a, he bought it, I think from like a, you know, like a house painter or something used. And he had this tan van and on the side of, on the sides of it, he had painted a silver shamrock look. <laughs> 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 and so we would drive, he was my roommate. He, he eventually became my roommate, like the following year. But uh, yeah, so we would drive around and basically have this silver shamrock van. Also. I think to me, I always say like this Halloween, Halloween three is like the most Halloweeny of all the Halloween movies. Like it it's the most it's the one that captures like something about like the holiday of Halloween for me, uh, even more so than the Michael Myers ones. The summer, the the Halloween after my book came out in 2016, I decided to fly to England and see John Carpenter play on Halloween night in london and that morning i went to stonehenge wow so that was the most halloween of any halloweens because i spent the day in stonehenge and then i saw john carpenter <laughs> play the theme that's from halloween. pretty great oh, that's pretty awesome w- one last
2: thing guys of the three masks skull witch and jack-o'-lantern which one are you
1: i have a jack-o'-lantern one but i i prefer the skull one
0: in the words of my boss, John, you're the only person I know whose skull I could see from the outside of your skin, uh so uh I gotta go skull,
2: yeah, I'm gonna go jack Lantern. yeah, Halloween three, awesome, okay, so where are we now, John, you're number two well
0: once again on a podcast, my Catholicism rears its ugly head uh i I gotta go with the original exorcists, yeah, um there's something just again a movie that just makes you uncomfortable from the get-go and like you're there so much tension and so much sympathy created for these characters and I think for a movie like this to come out of uh, this era of filmmaking a supernatural horror you know in the era where people were you know making movies like like the the Godfather you know where we're no we're going hard into the biggest institution in the history of the world the Catholic Church they're gonna be our hero um and so for for this film to sort of make the viewer believe in that you know, like the power of the church is gonna help this little girl that seems ridiculous but in the hands of these filmmakers like, you know, freaking pulled something out that I, I just think is a, is astonishing and like little moments like having your your main character just urinates in front of house guests being a moment of horror um, I think is something totally unique and totally absent of, of supernatural elements but it still adds to the supernatural terror and it makes the final exorcism pay off when you know Maxwell and Cito finally shows up And, of course, the music is amazing. Like It's just sort of an unassailable piece of cinema, in in my opinion. Agreed, agreed.
2: When I sat down, I thought, right, five horror films. Straight off the bat, The Exorcist was on that list. It always has been. Always been one of my favourite horror films. I'm a massive fan of William Friedkin. Then the more I thought of it, and the more I thought of the other five films on the list, for various reasons, The Exorcist got pushed off. But, again, this list is far from definitive. I absolutely love the film. Um, You know I was lucky enough to see it in the cinema when it was re-released maybe back in I think 98 for the 25th anniversary. That was a wonderful experience. There's so many things in that film I think how the hell did freaking get away from that even in you know the very gritty 70s things like you know the crucifix scene and, and some of the shit that comes out of Reagan's mouth is just you know unbelievable just shocking. But yeah, absolutely brilliant film, and and, you know, hopefully it's a film that we'll be uh, talking about
1: maybe in a bit more depth in a future episode. But Blake, what what are your thoughts on The Exorcist? Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's a masterpiece. I mean, it's hard to deny kind of its greatness. And it's, you know, there's something about it being like a studio picture at that time that also adds to it. You know, for instance, like you can look at something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and there's something about It's grittiness and it's the way it looks and it's low budgetness that is effective. It might even be the same year you get The Exorcist on the other end of the spectrum. And there's something about it feeling like a real movie in comparison that makes it even more effective. When I taught a a course on horror movies, I showed this one semester and it was interesting to see like how not effective it was for college students I don't know say six or seven years ago and so we talked about that and one of the things we kind of discussed was that people don't go to church as much anymore there is like there's a general disbelief in in the things that i I feel like our you know our generation might have been on the tail end of having those kinds of things like you know nailed into us with Faith and God and the devil and stuff, and so it's interesting how a young audience can react to it now because it's if you remove any belief in what's happening, it becomes you know you you kind of lose the the fear, the scariness of it. Yeah, I agree. But uh, it's it's I mean it's brilliant. So that's your number
2: two. Uh, oh well, my number two. I, I've got a feeling, funny feeling one of you guys may well have picked this for your number one possibly. I had to push a John Carpenter film off this list because of obviously, you know, my own sort of sense of not wanting to repeat myself. Um, so if I left uh, the other John Carpenter horror film in fact the one that is full-on horror with no science fiction elements and that is his original 1978 halloween since this podcast uh started one of my well my my single biggest regret is last halloween for the 40th anniversary we didn't do an episode on it unfortunately october was a bit of a tight month for us all it would have tied in perfectly with the release of the 2018 halloween sequel but yeah carpenter's film it is an absolute masterclass in how to do a lot with very little. It's made on a very small budget. He does everything he can you know, to make that film look just incredible. He shoots in scope 2.35 to 1. When I compare Halloween to films, you know, horror films that come later on. Uh, films which are held in very high regard. Films like, uh, you know, A Nightmare on Elm Street for one. I've watched that film again recently. For me personally, it doesn't hold up. It's not scary. Freddy Krueger, he comes more across, even in that first film, as more of a comical character. Whereas Michael Myers, you know, the way he, even in Dr. Loomis's speech about him, about the fact that, you know, he he spent X amount of years trying to, you know, get through to the boy. And then, you know, another amount of years trying to, you know, keep him, you know, locked up. Tells you so much about the character when you hear other people bigging this character up as this just complete soulless creature that is just hell-bent on destruction and killing and you know that incredible opening scene with you know you know the young Michael Myers sneaking around his house you know and and then killing his sister and then that big reveal of you know the mask being lifted it is just such an effective film but moreover if you take Carpenter's score out of that film much like with John Williams's score for Jaws it just loses so much of its impact we're coming up to the Halloween season soon and you know I just can't wait again to you know as I do Every couple of years I'll re-watch Halloween. And I have to be honest with you, the last couple of times I watched it, the a few of the kills, um, you know, certainly the kill in the car and PJ PJ Souls' character, it's it's like that almost sort of goofy look on her face as she's being, you know, choked to death. Yeah. It, it's a little bit kind of hokey. But it, two little flaws, which I have picked up on, which are just, you know, personal little things. I thought, ah, oh, do you know what? I think, Carpet, if you went back now, you'd make those deaths a lot more sort of, you know, impactful. But, you know, other than that, the film is just... It does so much with so little. Jamie Lee Curtis's performance is incredible. Nick Castle's physical performance as the shape, as, you know, as, as Michael Myers is referred to, is just the the little tilt of a head, you know, as he stabs the guy and, and sort of pins him up on the, on, on the door little things like that it's, it's almost as if he's studying him like he's just pinned a butterfly to a board and he's just inspecting it there's so much subtlety and, and nuance and just everything about the film More, moreover for me is is the whole atmosphere and the fact that it was a horror film much of it is shot at daylight you know in, in the first parts of the film where Michael is, is stalking Laurie Strode apart from those little things were just personal gripes which I picked up on which I had to mention it it is a perfect film because it is so efficient and effective in what it does and you know crikey it was it was one of carpenter's first films people have said yes you know psycho you know did the same thing 18 years before but psycho yes you know it's not on my list but again one of those films that was pushed off and you know, alongside the exorcist is one that could easily be in anyone's top five horror films but you know i will give credit to to carpenter for what he did with halloween he created that genre there and then, which carried on into the eighties and just, you know, culminated really in a, in a nice homage to the whole genre in ninety six with with Scream. But yeah, it's that's, that's my
1: number two. I, I think the success of Halloween created the slasher genre, but I think I think stylistically, something like Black Christmas. I,
2: I was going to say as soon as you said that, yeah, you know, I thought yeah, Black Christmas was you know that was nineteen seventy four. You know, you could argue that the same themes are at play in *Texas Chainsaw Massacre*, but the way the way I see it is, when I think of *Black Christmas*, I don't think of a character like Jason Voorhees, like Freddy Krueger, and like Michael Myers, like an iconic character that sprang from it. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, there is argument that you know, when you think of those characters like Pinhead, you know, and whatever, and, and Leatherface, you 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 would say that yeah, you know, *Texas Chainsaw Massacre* was again four years before Halloween. But there was that thing of the way it was kind of remade in so many different horror series years later and, you know, going into the 80s where they just tried to replicate it. And I don't think it was ever done as effectively as in that first Halloween film. Although I will say
1: I am a big fan of the second film. I am too. I actually like the second one as much as I like the first one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I will say about Halloween, uh, you know, certainly not uh, not something I think we need to go like, I at least I don't need to go incredibly in-depth in. Depth in. I mean, it, but what I will say about it is that some of the subtle stuff that you're talking about, I mean, I think there's like more interesting, subtle things, depth in Halloween than I think most people give it credit for. Yeah. I think things that if you if one really watched it with a very like careful eye, looking for things, like I mean, look, there can't be any coincidence that this comes out after Jaws. I mean, lo- the way Loomis describes Michael Myers is the way Quint describes the shark. You know? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, it is, yeah like yeah, the dead eyes, like a doll's eyes, lifeless. And, yeah, it's the same thing. And, and also. What's interesting about it is that the way he describes Michael Myers as a child, he's talking like figuratively like there was this pale face and he had the blackest eyes. But that's how we see Michael Myers with like this pale white. The mask is like the personification of how he viewed him as a child you know these dark holes where his eyes should be and this pale like emotionless face is exactly the way my, like dr loomis describes him as a kid so <laughs> mm. <laughs> there's just like there's so many things in it like that um it's also you know it's kind of the sh- the start before even you know you're talking about like the spielbergian like world of of suburbs and stuff i mean I think I don't think we can really until Halloween came out. I mean, I'm sure there might be movies, but I can't think of movies that literally took place in the kind of place that I grew up in. Mm. You know, like Night of the Living Dead is in some like abandoned farmhouse somewhere, you know, psychos at some motel off the beaten track since the new highway got put in same with texas chainsaw massacre you know okay black christmas is in a sorority house i guess in a suburban neighborhood but you know it's it's something about it like it's a sorority house i didn't live in a sorority house i did live in a fucking house and a suburb town (laughs) exactly like the neighborhood that that movie takes place in. so carpenter kind of put you know how has come to your town sheriff you know like It's true. Like he gave that to us as as a viewer, because I think like most of our I think not most, but I'd say a lot of our generation who who experienced this movie after the fact did grow up in similar neighborhoods.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's a testament to Carpenter's skills as a filmmaker is that he's able to make the most mundane terrifying. You know, he he made the shape so blank, and he put it in a setting so familiar to us that that it, it's entirely because of his filmmaking that these things are scary when you combine it with, you know, the, his musical score and, all, and the, the physicality of The Sheep's performance and Jamie Lee Curtis's performance. It's a perfect slasher movie, and I think the entire genre has sort of lived in its shadow ever since, and I think its solution has been to either go over the top with violence or coming up with like marketable characters but uh, none of them have been as scary as michael myers in that first halloween movie
2: so blake uh we're on to your oh we've had your number one haven't
0: we yeah
1: i can give you the new number one go on then or we can skip it go on go on what's your new number one You know, it it was when I made it, like, I literally put this movie next to The Thing because it's a movie that I probably, I I would never argue it's as good as The Thing, but it's a movie that I probably love almost or as much as I do The Thing. And since we're on this John Carpenter kick, and maybe it's fitting that we just talked about Howard Hawks for, uh, you know, two hours or whatever. But that's a – I – I love Prince of Darkness from uh, 1987, I think.
2: Um, nice. Yes, it was, yes, it was 87, yeah.
1: And the reason why I said, it's interesting that, you know, ha- Halloween, th- I, ta- I said Halloween three and like Nigel, he had Nigel Neal write a script for Halloween three. It's, it's just now having Prince of Darkness be my new number one, like this is his stab at like a Nigel Neal like Quatermass type story. And it's another movie that, you know, like Halloween three for me, it's like, like weirdness goes a long way. I mean, it's a weird ass idea, but it also encapsulates so much of things that we know and love as fans of John Carpenter's movies. Like it's, it's a, uh, you know, it's got Assault of Precinct 13 a little bit in that, you know, they're trapped in this place. You know, with these forces outside and inside in Assault of Precinct 13, there's a mention of some kind of celestial thing happening with the sun or something in Assault of Precinct 13. There's an eclipse on the way here. There's like in a way, you know, I used to say in the mouth of madness and in the mouth of madness is a very important film uh, for me personally. Uh, which isn't worth going into. But I used to say *Mouth of madness was a little bit like Carpenter's greatest hits, but like Prince of darkness kind of really is, you get some of the body horror that happens in the thing you have, you know, people being taken over by this weird anti-God <laughs> ooze. Mm. You get some familiar John Carpenter actors in there. And I've always said that, in my opinion, and it's just a theory because I don't know John Carpenter well enough. I've had been fortunate enough to interview him, and I've been fortunate enough to become friendly with his son, Cody. But I, uh, I always have a theory that Prince of Darkness might be his most personal movie in that something like Halloween, he was hired to write A Babysitter Murders. You know, th- this was like he was reading a book about quantum physics, and he decided to make a movie about it. And he wrote this movie, not because he was hired to write a crazy movie about, you know, taking a scientific look at religion and faith and evil and good. But he wanted to do that for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> and he did. Uh, it, it's his it might be his most his ugliest movie in that. You know, it's it's very, you know, it, it, we lose a lot of the beauty that I think comes with John Carpenter in terms of a, a visual aesthetic. I mean, it's it's very ugly to look at a lot of the time. But uh, other than that, I just think it's the, this weird like I feel like it's that one movie that is like probably the closest we'll ever get into like a peek through the keyhole at like the mind of John Carpenter. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just it's bizarre but i love the score too like it's one of my favorite scores of his and alan Howarth, it's, it's just it's so damn weird but i but i just i love that it's this what a weird idea and then i love that he was able to do it and that he did it
2: oh, I i love his apocalypse trilogy of which i think that this is the second part and and in the mouth of madness is the third like that was 94 wasn't it in the mouth of madness yeah yeah yeah, I haven't seen it for a long time. I, I, I've i picked up um, the recent um, re-release Studio Canal. I've, I've just released a, a lovely new remaster of the film, but, but I've yet to re-watch it. But yeah, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's, it's not going to be my top three or even four maybe favourite Carpenter films. But yeah, it, it, it is a great film. And it's just got that, yeah, that apocalyptic sort of end of the world sort of feeling that permeates the thing. And then obviously in the Mouth of Madness, we just picked up on again. And you always know, got Donald Pleasance, which is which is always a bonus. Uh, John, are you a fan?
0: Yeah, I yeah, I really am. Um, I I, I love Prince of Darkness. Like, because I had just recently um been reading about quantum physics myself when I first saw this movie. Like, when I was probably in my early twenties. Um, and so you know, also again being Catholic and so seeing the sort of collision of Catholicism and and science being the crux of this film, I. I think you know that hits a very core part of me if my memory is correct i had also just seen um big trouble little china for the first time recently and then so i got to see dennis dunn in a, in a movie again so it was just that alone was great so this movie hits a lot of points for me that like immediately spoke to me on a personal level and yet weird green ooze I'm always in uh, <laughs> <so yeah>, two. <the, laughs> so yeah, Prison of Darkness is is great, great carpenter. Um, very underrated. So um, I'm really happy to see it on one of our lists. Yeah.
2: So John, that, that leaves your number one.
0: I know this series of movies has a huge cult following, um, but I think the sort of cartoonish elements of it has made it underrated as a piece of cinema. And I love all three of th- this franchise. Um, but I think the pinnacle of of it is the middle one, uh, Evil Dead Two. Again, I, I can't help but be brought back to uh, my own experience when I first watched this movie, which was probably the greatest sleepover experience of my life. Is just when a bunch of friends got together and you know on a VHS on a shitty TV showed me this weird movie called Evil Dead Two in a basement, and I was in love with it ever since. Just like laughing taxidermied heads. Uh, the mirror version of Ash coming out to get him. Um, there's so many unexpected twists and turns um, in terms of the way the plot unfolds and in terms of the way the story is told visually and, and mechanically and, and in Bruce Campbell's performance. And it's a movie about teenagers going to a cabin in the middle of the woods to surprise to have something that surprises me every two minutes in that, so basic of a plot, I think is remarkable. And for a movie to really pull off being both funny and scary, I, I don't think it's equaled, um, it, at least in these sort of like turn everything to 11 manner that this franchise has. And, and you know, for, for me to believe in Ash, uh, I think is just one of the great on screen performances in like cinema history. Like, he. Saws off his own hand and replaces and it with a chainsaw. His... Yeah, like, <laughs> fuck. Yes. Yeah. Like, there's so many, there's so few things that make me feel as good as watching Bruce Campbell in this movie. And I, I don't think anybody's been able to equal the sort of like energy that sam raimi and company brought to to horror i I know it might be hard to take it seriously but i think this is a remarkable feat of movie making and i can't help but love all three of these movies but evil dead 2 um, in particular blake
2: you've obviously uh, you've just covered it on uh, saturday night movie sleepovers
1: yeah just a couple of weeks ago You know, what I will say about it, which is what I said then, because, you know, obviously all these movies we could do entire episodes on and some of us have. But uh, what I love about it, uh, one of the things I love about it and I think gets overlooked about it. I mean, I think everybody will agree that Bruce Campbell is great in it. But I will argue that Bruce Campbell gives one of the greatest performances of all of cinema in that movie. Like, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head that would be able to carry a movie the way he does, considering that he's really by himself in a room (laughs) for like a huge chunk of the beginning of that movie. And he is, and he manages to do it in such a way that is entertaining, but also funny, but also kind of crazy. You know, like his spiral into insanity is fantastic. I, I just like it. Would, it. I don't. I think it's a performance that, as much as everybody likes it, I think is still underrated. Yeah. So that's
2: your number one, Evil Dead Two. So that just leaves my number one. Um, you know, I, I did toil probably for about thirty seconds with this one. My number one choice is a film that just. It's more than a horror film. It's it's a work of art. And again, you know, much like Carpenter's Halloween, which is made on a budget of three hundred thousand dollars, this was made for the same amount. Uh, and is my second Toby Hooper film to make the list. And it is, of course, the original nineteen seventy four, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's now forty five years on. Um, I think I first saw the film probably in the nineties because for some ridiculous reason, the BBFC in the UK banned this film for a well for decades when if you actually watch the film there's not that much violence and gore in it you Now I don't know what it was they objected to I think it was the overall maybe tone of the film and the fact that you know a lot of people watch the film and actually think they've just seen loads of people cut up with a chainsaw when in actual fact I think you only see um, Paul Partain's character of Franklin getting cut up and again much of that is framed in a way that you just don't see any of it really but you know from the very beginning of the film it opens up with just you know everything about the film tells you that something is wrong you've got this this footage of solar flares you've got pictures of of dead armadillos on the road it the whole film makes you feel uncomfortable and when you see this you know this sort of scooby-doo van turn up you know they're, they're looking for isn't this some of the relatives of of uh sally and, and franklin yeah and they, you know they end up stumbling across this slaughterhouse run by this family and and you know the way things play out the, the scenes of, of a frantic marilyn burns just falling around with all of these you know, in this room with all of this furniture which is made out of body parts and bones but it's all put together in a way that only a madman could ever do You know the hitchhiker that they pick up, which we later find out is Leatherface's brother. The the whole crazed thing with him and the razor blade—it's just everything about the film is just absolutely insane. But again, grounded in this sort of documentary reality of, you know, and again, it was based, you know, in part on you know serial killers like Ed Gein, people who would do these horrendous acts and like wear the skin of their victims. But none of that is dwelled upon. It's just. Played purely to make you feel uncomfortable and then when things do erupt you've got an incredible scene of, of Pam you know she sat on the, the the swing chair outside the house she gets up the camera follows her under the, and again this is all framed in, in beautiful broad daylight with blue skies and then as soon as she goes into the house absolute hell breaks loose you know with the way that she's hooked up on the meat hook uh, whilst um, I think is it Jerry played by Alan Danziger is being cut up with a chainsaw. You know, his whole death, the way that he sees that big steel door, it opens up, Leatherface clubs him with a lump hammer, he falls on the floor and convulses, and then his body's dragged in and the door is shut. And it's the stuff that we don't see. It's it's the, and, and the brutality of it all. It's just absolutely remarkable. You know, very low-budget film, but, you know, by the end of it, you feel like you've seen something absolutely, truly groundbreaking, just magnificent. The ending, and I I think any ending to a film can make or break a film, but you've know, you got that incredible scene of an absolutely frantic Marilyn Burns driving off. She's just got away, jumped on the back of a truck. She's covered in blood. You can see that in just the look of her eyes alone, she's never going to be the same. She's never going to get over what she's just gone through. And then you've got Leatherface doing that beautiful chainsaw dance in the sunset, and then it finishes. And it just leaves you numb. It's just... Absolutely remarkable, and in my mind, I'm not you know I'm not saying it's the greatest horror film I've ever made, but it's certainly up there. Yeah, there's
0: nothing like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I think there's so many things about it that are unequaled. Yeah, um it has one of the best sound designs of any movie in history. Like it. it yeah, you just you the feel way you looks, feel
2: the heat, don't you? You feel yeah. like the the baking heat of yeah. uh, of of that Texas location yeah you know the sound design that and again it's a very grainy looking film and like even you know back for the 40th anniversary 5 years ago they they remastered the film put the film back out again on blu-ray but it still got like ingrained into it this sort of just layer of grain and and muck and it just it isn't a very clean looking film it's never going to scrub up to the extent that you know some films from the 70s simply because it was shot on you know lower quality film stock but then that adds to it that that adds that dirty grimy feel of just i've scarcely got the words for it it's just an absolute work of art
0: i I think um, my experience with this film is definitely tied to when i first saw it and just it was just, you know, on video. I watched it like the next day. I, I like, and then I went to the sleep, and I woke up, and my brother was watching it, and I just like stopped what I was doing, and just I just couldn't look away. And like mm-hmm. over the weekend, we just like kept like watching it over and over, like trying to suss out like what was so hypnotic about it, and we just couldn't look away. It, it, yeah, it's a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that if there's ever a nomination for a haunted painting, a uh, work of cinema. That has something supernatural about it, even though there's nothing supernatural yeah. in it. It's Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Agreed. Like there might be poltergeist living inside of the celluloid of Texas Chainsaw Massacre.
1: <clears throat> I've always thought if if we were to judge a movie and consider perfection being that there is nothing you can do to a movie to make it better, yeah. To me, that means it's a perfect movie, and I Texas Texas Ch- Chainsaw Massacre. Was the first movie I ever watched. And I was just like, this is perfect. There's nothing you could do to this movie to make it better in terms of more effective. You know, like what it, it's a tour de force of, of, of a, a visceral assault on the viewer. You know, there's so much. That could be said about it in terms of, you know, the idea of uh, applying reason to what's happened. You know, one of the reasons why the first Halloween is so great is because Michael Myers does what he does because he just does it. You know, like he's not in the first one. He's not going after his estranged sister. He's just a killer. And you don't know why. And that's what's frightening about it. It's actually just so masculine Like, you don't know why these guys you know there's like sure there's the economic struggle of big industry and technology putting people out of work in it but it's like you don't know why they like the only reason that you could really give to them being like this weird cannibal family is that human flesh tastes better and that's horrifying and also when i when i showed it when I taught the horror class and I showed it one time that I showed it, there was something watching it, kind of like through their eyes. Even though we didn't, nobody said anything. It was like literally while we were watching it, I something dawned to me, dawned on me that I had never thought about in watching it before, which was like this movie to me to the kinds of nightmares that I have that I'm pulled out of slumber with is this it's not like rosemary's baby being impregnated scene like my to me like my my dreams rarely get that surreal to me the idea of like no matter how hard you've run away from something awful that you keep on ending up back at the start yeah is a very real nightmare and also just like the hyper reality of you know, being tied to a chair and they're mocking you. You know, they're like, oh, like uh, imitating her crying. It's something of, it's something of nightmares in a, in a very real sense to me. And it's, and it, it didn't dawn to, on me that that's what, That's one of the things that really makes me uncomfortable about it. But when I realized that, I realized that, like, when I have a nightmare that really freaks me out, it's like that. So for me, it's a it's like the most realistic depiction of what a nightmare is to me.
0: Just we were talking about brain bugs earlier. I remember like weeks after seeing this movie for the first time, instead of a song being a a, like a, a near worm or a brain bug, just the phrase. On a meat hook kept going over and over and over in my brain and then I would see that scene in my head and so yeah this film uh, stayed with me
2: the, the, the most perfect summation of this film I've ever heard is I think it must have been back for the uh, I think 25th anniversary it was re-released over in the UK um, it was not long after they lifted the ridiculous ban which had been in place for I think pretty much 20 plus years on the film in the UK And and it got a limited theatrical release. Unfortunately, I wasn't lucky enough to go and see it. But my best friend was. Now, he went to see it with his girlfriend. And the next day, he rang me up. And he said, oh, yeah, I went to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I was like, oh, what was it like? He said, great, fantastic. He'd obviously seen it before. We both had. He said there were two youngish kids in their late teens sat in front of him. And as the film finished, they turned to each other. And one of them said, that was fucked up. And that was it. (laughs) That is, that is the perfect summation of that film. It is just completely batshit crazy and all the more beautiful for it. It's a work of art. It's where film and horror and art just all come together in this perfect thing. So there you go. That's my number one.
1: It's a good one to end
2: on. Yeah. Uh, so we put things up to f- Facebook and Twitter for uh, listener lists and we had a huge response. Because we're pushing over three hours, I'm going to have to cut them back. And also I've got the Film 89 guys. They've given me theirs as well. So before I get flack off them, I'm going to have to include their list. Starting off with Richie Roberts. He says, not counting Jaws as a horror film. Otherwise it would be number one and the rest would be bumped down the space. But his are number five, The Shining. Number four, The Original Halloween. Number three, Poltergeist. Number two, Silence of the Lambs. And number one, Alien. Steve Amos has said number five, Onibaba. Number four, 1942's Cat People. I think, is that Val Luton? Or is it? Yeah, yes, it yeah. is. Uh, number three is Silence of the Lambs. Number two is The Innocent, a film I've not seen, uh, which is a shame. Oh, I, I, I love that. Movie. Really love Deborah Kerr. so Kirk. good. And number one, The Exorcist. Uh, Hayden Spurrell has got number five, Let the Right One In. Number four, Psycho. Number three, Carrie. Number two, a film which would have made my honourable mentions if we were doing them. It follows. And number one, he's cheated a little bit. He's picked Frankenstein and The Bride of Frankenstein. But we'll allow him that. Neil Gaskin. Neil's number five is John Carpenter's The Thing. His number four is The Omen. Number three, American Werewolf in London. Number two, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 3. Which he says... Freddy uses tendons as puppet strings. No other explanation is required. And his number one is Poltergeist. He says, When I first saw it, I was scared shitless, and I'm till, still terrified of clowns and trees by my bedroom window. There's one outside my bedroom window now, and I've petitioned the council to have it removed, but the fat cats at City Hall don't listen. Jacob Rivera at JRATM23, was also part of the Film 89 crew, he says, In no particular order, Exorcist, Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Christine, and The Thing. His honourable mentions are The Fly, Pet Sematary, Alien, and Night of the Living Dead. Good old Bill Scurry, who you find on Twitter, at William Scurry. Number five, The Keep. Is that the Michael Mann film? Yeah. Yeah, he's recently said, I think, as well, that that's actually his favourite Michael Mann film. Number four is Deep Red. Number three, Suspiria. So, yeah, uh, two Argento films there. Number two, Poltergeist, and number one, The Beyond from 1980. Steven Simpson, who you'll find on Twitter at Steve007, has picked number five, Psycho, number four, Suspiria, number three, The Shining, number two, Good Old Halloween, and again, number one, The Exorcist. His honourable mentions are Evil Dead, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, Dawn of the Dead, that's the 78 version, The Omen, and John Carpenter's The Thing. I am Jack's Musings on Twitter. In no particular order, Halloween, the John Carpenter original, Scream, The Shining, Ringu, and number one, Jaws. Also on Twitter, at Shredded Retweet says, in no particular order, Jacob's Ladder, The Exorcist, The Keep, turning up again, Halloween, and Alien. Uh, And again on Twitter, at Trev696 says, in no particular order, The Original Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, John Carpenter's The Thing, Alien. And the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And finally we'll go with Andrew Williams via Facebook who has got at number five The Descent, number four The Exorcist, number three The Thing, number two An American Werewolf in London and number one The Shining. So apologies for anyone whose list I haven't called out there but we are pushing over the three hour mark now and it is getting very late and I've got to be up very early in the morning but thank you for everyone as usual who sent in our lists. And guys, a big thanks to you, John, firstly, for, for pitching this episode and Blake for finally making an appearance on Film 89. I know you're extremely busy uh, writing your second book and also doing all the podcast stuff that you do. So really much appreciated. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, guys. Is there anything you'd like to plug or uh, and where can people find you if they'd like to hit you up on social media?
0: Yeah, uh, you can find me at Quasar Sniffer at both uh, Instagram and on Twitter. Uh, You can find my store, Comics Connection, uh, uh, in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. You just – we're on Facebook. Just search us. Uh, If you're ever in Pennsylvania, you can go to a bookstore, buy an actual comic book, talk to people who read comics. They're good. Read some actual books. Or you can buy Blake's book. That's a pretty good one, too. (laughs) Indeed it is.
1: (laughs) My book is called Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers. Some of the music from some of the films that we – we're on many of the lists that were spoken of today uh, as discussed in that book. Um, it's available on Amazon, from other book retailers, uh, and from me directly at scoredtodeath.com. And you can follow me on social media at Scored to Death on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. And, of course, the other podcasts I do are uh, – there's a Scored to Death podcast, but the other ones are Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers – And uh, I do, for the damn fine network, I do Cuts from the Crypt, where I get to play DJ for a day, and I play horror movie music.
2: Please, guys and girls, if you don't already follow Blake on Twitter and Facebook and and listen to his podcast, please do. How many episodes is it now, Blake? It's it's five years, and is it 100
1: and... I don't know. We Honestly, like, we kind of lost count, because sometimes we do bonus episodes, because the show is every other week, but sometimes... We haven't done it recently just because Dion had a book come out called uh, Blood in the Streets, which is a novel that's worth checking out. Yeah. But since he was writing his book and now I'm writing my book and uh, well, we used to do these things that we called sidecasts, which is on the off week. Sometimes we would do an episode uh, that's unlike the format is different than our regular show. Um, so honestly, I don't know how many episodes we have. It's it's over, it's in it's over 100. <laughs> I don't know how far over, though, but uh, we're going into our sixth year and we've never missed an episode so we've done at least one episode every other week for over five years now so
2: yeah and we genuinely mean it over at Film89 when we say it is one of our absolute favourite podcasts so please everyone who listens to us please also take the time to dive into Blake and Dion's massive back catalogue I absolutely guarantee you will find a raft of episodes that you will thoroughly enjoy but before we wrap things up I'd just like to say a massive thank you as I do a lot of episodes, but this time I really mean it. After our last episode, episode thirty-three, we just had some fantastic figures back regarding downloads. Uh, I did put a tweet out last week. I'm not going to go over that again, but we are absolutely blown away by how well we're doing because you guys and girls are following us. You're, you're recommending us to friends. You're listening to all of our back. I say all of our back catalogue. This is only you know the thirty-fourth episode. But we couldn't have anticipated for a second the Film eighty nine the podcast would be doing half as well as it's doing now. And it's all thanks to our amazing followers and listeners. Uh we are just so grateful and, and you know to all of our guests and all of our friends who who helped promote us. Just a massive thanks from all of the Film eighty nine crew. Please, um, the only thing we ask is we're going to continue to give you this free content. The only thing we ask is give us an, uh, a positive review on iTunes. That is going to do even more for us than you could imagine uh, you know, with the bizarre sort of promotional way that Apple Podcasts works. But yeah, if you could take the time to do that, we'd be very grateful. Uh, but you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can find all of the Film 89 team at film89.co.uk and also on Twitter and Facebook at Film 89 UK. Uh, But that's about it for now. Uh, But hopefully we'll be back with you soon. But as we usually say, stay safe, stay happy, but more importantly, stay classy.